This episode is brought to you by Bubs Naturals, and one of the most profound new supplements I've added to my own diet is collagen. And Bubs provides the only collagen that is not only NSF certified, but also Whole30 certified. Now, when we think of collagen, you might think of beauty products, but when ingested, collagen not only positively affects skin, nails, and hair, but also joint and gut health, something that I witnessed personally within myself. Now, I'm also a huge fan of altruistic business, and Bubs was founded out of tragedy. Glenn Bub Doherty was one of the two Navy SEALs killed in Benghazi. And his friends, Sean and TJ, founded this company to not only create great nutritional products, but also take 10% of the proceeds and donate them to charity. So they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 20% off your first purchase if you use the code SHIELD at bubsnaturals.com. And if you want to hear more about the inception of Bubs and Glenn's powerful story, listen to episode 558 of Behind the Shield podcast with Sean Lake. This episode is sponsored by 511, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 511 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 5.11 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 5.11tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the 
products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorn has actually been around since the 1980s where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Christine Bold. Now, Christine is an athlete, a CrossFit coach, an author, and the woman behind Dave Castro's Instagram post during the CrossFit Games. So we discuss a host of topics from her early life here in Ocala, Florida, her journey into Middle Eastern politics, finding CrossFit, the obesity epidemic, working with some of Iceland's most elite athletes, writing, and so much more. Now, before I get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Christine Bold. Enjoy. Well, Christine, I want to start by saying welcome to my home and thank you for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Well, thank you very much. Your home is very close to my home, so this is a first. Well, we also had to hit record because we started talking. I think it's been 30 minutes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Those are always the best starts to a podcast. They are. And it's funny because it's a different dynamic face-to-face versus Zoom, which is what I do a lot. But for example, you know, even the opening is a lot more organic because we've usually been chatting face to face so it's so much better in person flew all the way down here just to be on a podcast with you i appreciate it <laughs> and maybe Actually, Christmas. I drove down here <laughs> all right well then for people listening tell me where your home would be normally i live normally in boston massachusetts 20 minutes outside actually i'm in natick i am a member of crossfit new england and that's where i train have trained for the last seven years Beautiful. And it's kind of my home base for all of the writing stuff I get to do for a living. 
Well, I'm sure people recognize that CrossFit specifically, so we'll kind of get to that in a little bit. I would love to start at the very beginning, though. I know your origin story is here in Ocala. So tell me where you were born, but then also tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents do, and uh, how many siblings. Sure. I was born in, oh gosh, what was the hospital? It's called Advent Health now, but it used to be Monroe Regional Medical Center right here in Ocala. And I grew up here, went to high school, Bellevue High School, have two siblings, Will, Carrie, they're within three years of me. So we all were in high school together, which is fun. I moved to New York to go to Syracuse University when I was 18. After that, um, lived in D.C. for 10 years, kind of trying to figure out exactly how I wanted to save the world. I thought I wanted to do Middle East stuff for a while, so I worked for the U.S. State Department on the Iraq desk. And then after that, worked for an NGO um, doing something kind of similar in Palestine area. Got to travel back and forth to Jerusalem a decent amount. So that was really cool. And somewhere in there, got introduced to CrossFit. I was bartending, actually, just to make extra money because the government doesn't pay you shit. And got in. Everybody did CrossFit at the bar that I worked at. And they got me to try it. Tried it. Absolutely obsessed with it from the word go. And ended up moving up to Boston to kind of play for the pros. So CrossFit New England is owned by one of the um, more prominent CrossFit coaches in our space. And he offered me a job. Couldn't say no. And I've been there ever since. Brilliant. Well, you just blew through like 30 <laughs> years. So I'm going <laughs> to... It's gonna... not that interesting. <laughs> I give it the highlights. <laughs> That's what happens when people are very, very humble. They're like, yeah, this is what happened. <laughs> I was born and I lived and that's it. <laughs> exactly. Um, so well, starting with your parents. Um, I believe I might be a patient of one of your dad's colleagues. Tell me what your parents do. My dad is an ear, nose, and throat surgeon here in town. He's been retired for a couple of years now, um, but he practiced here his entire life, like 35 years. Um, he's an ear, nose, and throat surgeon and here in Ocala. And my mom is an audiologist and a speech pathologist, still practicing here in town. They both own their own practices and um, yeah. Learned, learned a great deal from them, but none of their kids went into medicine. So we all did something else. <laughs> we were going prevention side. That's what I always say. Yeah. I was a paramedic and a coach. And I used to tell people in the paramedic, it was when they, you know, it was too late. And in the gym, it was your opportunity to stop them ever being in, in the ambulance in the first place. Yeah, I didn't think that consciously going into becoming a CrossFit coach. But it is something that my parents and I have talked about. Like, I, we didn't go into medicine, but in a way, like two of the three of us, are very much kind of like still kind of in that space helping people in a similar way that they did just on the preventative end instead of the sickness end. So was your dad working at Ocala ENT? Have I got that right? He owns Ocala ENT. So there's a, a PA that works there, Hispanic gentleman. Uh, Jose Huron? I think that's him. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's my he's my hearing physician. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, my brother runs that practice now. My dad's been retired, but my brother still works there. And I believe that he's the one that recruited the doctor that you now see. So okay. Small world. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, with you have a pretty interesting, you know, um, perspective with your parents. We just went through a pandemic where um, the virus specifically seemed to remove smell. With your dad being an ENT, would you have any discussions on what the kind of physiology was behind that you know i couldn't tell you my mom was one of the people that lost her sense of smell she got covid she's one of the first people she got it in like february of 2020 very early and she still does not have her sense of smell and the like the ent's that i've talked to do not fully understand it 
Interesting. So I wish I did, but I do not. <laughs> now, what about from the, the hearing side? So the reason I went, I go to ENT is I was a firefighter for a long, long time. You know, we're exposed to a lot of different noises. Um, and so, and when I was young, I had grommets, what they called it in England, the little tubes that they stick in when you have mm. the wax buildup and yep. you can't swim a for six months. A lot of kids get tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I was making sure that my hearing is still okay. It seems like you see a lot of people, you know, with their, their hearing start to diminish. Has he, with the preventative and wellness lens, has he talked to you about how you can improve longevity in hearing? So this would actually be a my mom question. She's the like hearing specialist and has been telling us since we were little kids to be more careful about hearing because exposure to this exposure to that will decrease your hearing over time and you know when you're a kid you're just like ah fuck off mom like you're just saying that (laughs) (laughs) um but i recently read a book by mary roach who is an incredible writer probably one of my top five favorite um writers just in terms of style um she covers kind of like um the intersection between science and like the military and she wrote this book called grunt and it is a whole book on just how the military um, deals with certain aspects of science, wherever that affects them. So the first chapter is about how they um, develop the fabrics for um, the different terrains where people serve really hot, really cold. It has to be fire retardant. It has to be this. And they actually test it in Natick, Massachusetts, which is where I live. Very cool. One of the chapters is about the, this kind of like very low key, um, not highly discussed part of being in the military, which is hearing loss, where there's constant explosions and it's become almost like a, I don't know the exact right military term for it, but it's a li- it's a huge liability on the battlefield because you have people um, with earpieces receiving commands amid all of these you know, explosions or loud environments and they don't hear stuff, so it puts them in danger. And so they have these um, perfect, like audiologists, which is what my mom is, um, advising and they have like, I've heard she's talked about like T caps, I guess is what they're called, where they lower certain parts of the audio and then they raise certain parts of the audio to allow people to hear better. These guys with hearing loss and fascinating stats about how just being on an airplane, um, and being sitting near the engine will lower your hearing just because that is the decibel at which your ears become damaged. And so after reading that and between talking to my mom growing up and just all of the kind of warnings, I'm now at the stage where I'm like much more respectful of noise and uh, I wish I knew more about it, but everybody should check out that chapter of Grunt. Yeah, I'm gonna have to read the book. Thank you for it's that. Awesome. I might have to reach out to the author and see if I can get her on. Oh my gosh, if you do, I would be the first listener. Yeah, okay, beautiful. Yeah, because our, our fire gear, more just recently we started learning that there are... Um, the forever chemicals, the PF. God, I've done a show on it. I'm forgetting the acronym now. It'll anyway, be lost on me I, anyway. I think it's PFAs or PFS. Um, anyway, the, the correct, whatever the correct um, acronym is, and they are carcinogenic. So even in the gear itself, I think it's the waterproof layer, if I'm not mistaken, um, can actually get us, you know, give us cancer too. So I'd be curious to see if the same in the if military. she's looked into something like that, yeah. yeah. Very cool. Check out the book for sure. It's a green book. Brilliant. All right. Well, then on the speech pathology as well, my son, as he grew up, you know, was just one of those kids that didn't develop clear speech until a little bit behind the curve. Has Have you had any conversations about 
speech with all this technology these kids have if there's been any impact from not physically looking at another human being as much i don't know i wouldn't be able to speak to that very well so i wouldn't want to speculate that'd be a my mom question <laughs> all right i'm always just gonna pull in these things from, from yeah no i w- like family sometimes i i will know sometimes it'll be dinner conversation sometimes it's just not yeah <laughs> they didn't much of what they would talk about at the dinner table when we were kids went right over my head because I just wanted to go ride my horse. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, speaking of that, so talk to me about the sports and exercise that you were doing at school age. Uh, school age, I was obsessed with horses from a super young age. I grew up here in Ocala, so it's kind of a lot of young girls end up being obsessed with horses here because they're so readily available in Ocala. It's the horse capital of the world yeah i don't know if kentucky and some of the other places in the world would would dispute that they might dispute it but i think ocala gets the crown just because it's breeding racing and training and it can all be done year round here whereas in kentucky you can't train on frozen racetracks so a lot of the training goes down here in ocala and it can happen year round so there's a huge capita of horse farms and breeding and racing and training and all the different elements. I agree that Kentucky would probably slap us in the face, but <laughs> Ocala gives them a good run. Well, we're lightning capital of the world too. Lightning we're capital. Greedy. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm, That's supposedly. Uh, way cooler probably yeah. than horse capital of the world. But yeah, grew up riding horses, um, showed competitively for as long as um, like kind of financially that allowed my parents kind of put their foot down as they should have after a while. It's an incredibly expensive sport with almost zero ROI, but it was great in terms of character development, um, having to care for a large animal that, um, could murder you at any moment and learning to be respectful of the animal and how to ride it, how to train it, how to care for it kept me out of all of the like normal high school bullshit that girls do like go to the mall and you know, watch a lot of TV and gossip about boys. And I didn't do a lot of that because I was in the barn mucking out my horse's stall and just playing with my horse. Have you ever heard of a, a guy, Buck Branneman? So he is the gentleman that the Horse Whisperer story is really kind of based on. Oh, cool. Um, and I went up to, where was I? Georgia, I think it was, um, to watch him do a clinic and then sit down. And we did half interview there and then... As this normally happens, these conversations go a long way. He has to go get dinner with some people, so we ended up finishing off over Zoom. But absolutely amazing. Very, very traumatic childhood. He was kind of forced to be a performing um, lassoer. Oh, uh, like cowboy. For like, yeah, for like, yeah. you know, serial commercials and stuff. His dad was very abusive. But it was that connection with the horse that allowed him to heal. And then what he learned working with the horses, he was able to then work with other riders because as we all know a bad dog or a bad horse is normally from the bad right you know owner or bad rider yeah there are no bad horses there are no bad dogs there are only bad owners yeah absolutely yeah so what about the kind of fitness element were you doing anything outside of actual riding to to try and raise up your game a little bit well i wouldn't like i would never would have thought about it like that um Hunter jumper equestrian is not exactly a cardio activity. So it was just about the horses for me. I was just in love with the horses. But when I got into high school, um, I was love sports growing up, like to play whatever my brothers and sisters were doing. Um, play was really into track. It was quite good, quite good at track. Uh, these long flamingo legs. So I did all the jumping things. I did the high jump, the hurdles. Um, if they made me, I would do the four by four relay, 400 relay. And, we would always show up for track practice and be incredibly out of shape when we showed up in January. And so our coaches would be like, 
absolutely not. You have to play two sports. You got to do something in the fall. Just please play soccer. Even if you suck, like it'll keep you running. So we would, most of us that ran track were kind of like voluntold into uh, playing soccer in the fall. So those are my two sports. Didn't, wasn't really good at soccer, but it kept me fit. Got into track, loved it. And then, you know, it's weird. You go to college and I played, I got into tennis. My parents were really into tennis. So I got into that kind of in college. Didn't play like obviously for the school team, but played intramural tennis. Got really into it. Really like just down the rabbit hole. Could, was playing as much as I could, as often as I could. If anyone who would hit with me, I just was, I don't know. I have this addictive personality and just honed in so much on tennis. Got really good, really fast. And then you graduate from college. And I don't know if, you know, this is something that military um, personnel could relate to, but it's almost like, that part of your life doesn't exist anymore. You're not an athlete anymore. You are now, you've joined the workforce and you're no longer an athlete. You go to your nine to five job and then you spend the rest of the night recovering from your nine to five job so you can do it again the next day. And that was really weird for me because I had played sports my entire life and was kind of like felt very adrift. I was playing tennis on the weekends whenever I could, but it's challenging. Like when you live in, you know, the mid-Atlantic environment where it's cold half the year. So you have to play indoors. You have to find another person to play with. And the better you are, the harder that is. And it costs money. And the court times are not easy to come by because everybody wants to play inside. So it was just, um, I was having a hard time staying active. I didn't really know what to do. So I was bartending. That's why I was so eager when my coworkers were like, yeah, go try this thing called CrossFit. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever. And CrossFit really became this thing for me where I was able to be an athlete, which is, I didn't really realize it until I kind of wasn't one anymore, that I it really was a part of my identity. I was an athletic, sporty person and not being able to do those things was, I don't know, it made me feel imbalanced in a certain way. So CrossFit, just you walked in, I was just immediately home, felt right. And that's kind of what it's been for me ever since is um, a way to stay fit. But more than that, like challenge myself, do hard things. I think that's so important. And CrossFit's allowed me to do that for a long time and make it um, sustainable for my entire life. I don't plan on ever not doing that. An observation that I've discussed on here a lot that was very jarring for me moving from England is not everyone, but there's a there's a, a tendency when you finish school in England to keep playing the sports that you enjoy. And they have pub leagues and you know, local leagues and all these things, or you just go into the park, throw down some sweaters, make goals and That's kick awesome. a ball around. When I got here, um, and people have listened to this show a lot, I've heard the story a few times, but you had these people that, you know, were, were very deconditioned now. And it seemed to be the same Uncle Rico story. You know, I, I could have been the greatest, you know, insert sport here. And it always ended with, I blew out my insert joint here at very young age. And now you know, they're obese and, you know, not doing very well health-wise. And through all these conversations, my observation has been a lot of these children play, perform at a very high level, are driven to be very good at that sport, but at the cost of their their enjoyment of activity and movement and also the addition of injury. Yeah, and it's just a well-rounded kind of set of skills too. Like when you only focus on one thing, like the Tiger Woods model is the classic, right? Where it's just from the age you can hold a golf club. When you only focus on that, like you only develop those muscles, those skills. And there's this 
to be a, a really top athlete, like some of the best athletes, most of the best athletes are people that had a much more diverse back, like sports background. And I don't know exactly what it is about being a more well-rounded, having a broader breadth of experience in sports, but seems to be linked to longevity. And I think Annie Thor's daughter is a great example of that. If anyone listening to your podcast knows who she is, like spent at the top of her sport for 14 years, not just still doing CrossFit games at the highest level, but um, continuing to like push the bar forward, continuing to push the rest of the field. Like she is on the podium, you know, in 2010 and again in 2021, like that's unbelievable longevity. And she has this kind of like very diverse sports background as do, you know, a lot of people, Roger Federer, a lot of these like top greatest of all time athletes have that background. And I'm definitely kind of in that camp where I think that's, there's something there that's related to longevity, mm-hmm. not specializing. So what was your perception? Or well, let me rephrase that. You've got to speak to so many people from Ben and, you know, the you know, the Icelandic phenoms that we have. Um, you know, what is their impression of that transition from high school or college to the quote unquote real world when it comes to you know, the the interest and the ability to keep moving, to keep playing. Because I feel, you know, my observation is there's a steep drop-off here that you don't see maybe in some other countries. Yeah, I mean, it's hard because some of the, two of the people that I, three of the people I work closely with, two of them are not American. They grew up in other countries had that have almost total opposite um, kind of sporting cultures. Um, Cash and David's daughter, Annie Thor's daughter, two of the best female athlete, CrossFit Games athletes of all time, grew up in Iceland. And in Iceland, there is no NFL. There's no NBA. There's no NHL. There's no, there's not a big professional sports like league in any particular sport. There's um, football, soccer here. Football. Yeah, it's football. <laughs> it's very dumb that American football named itself football. I'll mm-hmm. die on this hill. <laughs> yeah, well, I always tell you, well, you kick the ball, so that's all yeah, needs to be said. you guys are all wrong. Use your feet. <laughs> so they um, they have this very kind of intramural kind of club experience, and I think it's probably the same in Europe, or similar at least, where kids are encouraged to play three or four different sports, and it's just not that serious, and, you know, you can you can be really serious about it if you want, but if you suck, like, you're still going to be encouraged to play, and, you know, there's not um p- penalties like you're not going to get less playing time if you're not as good as the other kids because the idea is participation and it sounds like weirdly not competitive to the point where you would wonder how these two greatest of all times have like evolved from that environment but what it does is it just allows them to play and be kids and enjoy it and figure out what they like and that's like half the battle when you're talking about training at an incredibly high level in the most the world's most difficult sport in the one of the most difficult competitions that there is, it doesn't matter how much talent you have if you fucking hate it. <laughs> you like if training feels like a chore. And so these these incredible women have gotten into this sport and they've come at it from a place of not um, pressure, not this is what my parents think I should do. This is, you know, kind of what everyone is telling me I should do, but just, no, I love this. Like I could do this all day. Like I'm so glad I found this. Having experimented with a lot of different things, and that is kind of something that is very striking to me about both Brooke, Wells, Katrin, and Annie is that they all just love it so much. And not all of them, not every games athlete does. Like Matt Frazier, greatest of all time, didn't enjoy it, didn't love training as much as someone like Annie or Katrin does. Um, 
retired, had one of the greatest careers of all time, but retired after seven years of competition, whereas someone like Annie and Kat have been in the game for much longer. They just want to be. So it's an interesting kind of thing to think about of what you can do with uh, kind of when you take your time and you don't have to specialize or pick right away. It's a really roundabout answer, sorry. No, no, but it's, it's brilliant. It's, it just it aligns so closely. I've had, you know, guests from Sweden, guests from Norway, guests from Finland, um, you know, of which many of them rank very high in education, in, you know, the health of the nation, mental health of the nation. Um, and one of the biggest challenges I think we have in this country is this whole we're the greatest country in the world thing because – we're not, you know. I love that speech from I think it's the newsroom. No, I, was, I love the newsroom speech. It's, it was exactly incredible, but it's not it's about true. Not being a, it's the opposite of not being a patriot. It's being a patriot if you actually care about your country, and you walk out your front door and seventy percent of the nation is sick, you know, obese or overweight. Why would you not want to change that? Yeah, are we not going to talk about this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's too it's too patriotic to talk about. Like it's unpatriotic to talk about problems. From a problem-solving perspective, there's this is something I've talked a lot about with Ben Bergeron. Um, there's a line, right, between complaining and um, problem-solving. And when you're talking, when you're going to give voice like to something negative, there is one variable that makes the difference between just bitching and coming at it from a place of patriotism or caring or whatever you want to call it. And it's problem-solving. Are you just talking about it to vent and bitch and um, hear yourself talk, have an opinion, or are you giving voice to something because you are trying to find a solution? And to me, that's the difference. Like if we're talking about the obesity epidemic in America and we're just bitching about how fat everyone is and how, you know, we CrossFitters are, we're fitter, we're the solution and everyone should just do what we do. That's kind of just venting. But if we're like, let's have a real conversation about it. Let's talk about why people what are the let's get to the root of the cause so that we can problem solve it and kind of move forward and i think there's tends to be a lot of the um the bitching and not enough of the actual problem solving at at a high level in our country mm-hmm. well i, mean, I think you see it something that really just jumped out at me the last few days is the kind of um making fun for lack of a better word of anyone who has a new year's resolution you know, oh, they're useless. What's the point? You know, you should have the discipline. You should be in your ice tub at 5 a.m. after you've, you know, meditated and done the other things that I feel myself doing, by the way. I don't. Um, and the reality is we should be encouraging. We should be building community and we should be bringing, as you said, problems to solutions. So one of the things that, you know, I try and do on here is we don't even have to invent it. There are countries that do it really well. Finland's education system is amazing. You know, I talk a lot about Portugal's um, drug policy. You know, they don't lock up their addicts. Imagine that. Um, and so when I look at the Scandinavian countries, I feel that like they do the health side very well. So what were you seeing through your own eyes of the people of Iceland? And did you have any takeaways of things that maybe, you know, we could consider doing here? I feel like I wasn't there quite long enough to be able to um, have a really profound takeaway, but on the whole, the whole country is active. That's like the first thing we noticed. Um, it's a small population, so it definitely makes healthcare education around healthcare so much easier. We're just talking about educating a population of 350,000 people on the virtues of good nutrition, the virtues of 
you know, diet and exercise and all the rest, it's, it's so much easier. And I do understand that the United States is unique in the sense that our population is much bigger than a lot of these European countries and definitely not claiming to have a solution. But the whole, like, Iceland was incredibly active. We were there in the winter, almost at the winter solstice. So we're talking like 10 a.m. The sun is coming up and it's like dawn at 10 a.m. And at 630, it's getting dark and people are out hiking and walking and climbing mountains and going to hot springs. And they, they're they a much more adventurous, outdoorsy people. And they're, they're just more hardcore than we are. They, the whole country of Iceland, the whole landmass, the whole island is trying to kill everything on it at all times. And the Icelanders are just amazing because they've been like, yeah, we're going to fight back for as long as it takes. We're going to live here. This is our home. And they're incredibly hardy and resilient. And they have these it comes up a lot in conversations we had with Annie's family, because that's who we were working with the most, kind of repeatedly hearing some of the values where we're talking with our kids at a young age about good nutrition and the value of sleep. And it's not just fitness and diet. It's kind of these other elements that don't get discussed as much in the context of health in America, which is your connection with your family and your relationships in your life are incredibly important. There are so many studies that show that that is like, if not the number one key to longevity is your connection with other human beings. And it's such a soft thing and it's so easy to discount, but you look at a country like Iceland and you're like, eh, like hard to argue with it because it's something they talk about a lot. There are, their country is small, so they are very well connected. Um, the virtues of sleep, how important sleep is, not something that I hear a lot of people talking about in the United States. I think if, if anything, we should be starting there with the sleep. I talk about it all the time on here because oh I'm from so a profession that doesn't. Yes, it's incredibly important. And if anything here in the US, it's a badge of honor. Like, oh, I only got four hours of sleep, but I'm so functional. It's like, no, you sound dumb right now. You're not functional. You're not. You're half as functional as you could be if you'd gotten eight hours. You're aging yourself. Your cognitive function is 20% lower than it, it would be if you had gotten a full night of sleep. But it, it's this kind of like social stigma. It's It's not, you're lazy if you insist on sleeping eight or nine hours a night. So that was kind of something that I noticed a lot. Annie talks about it with her two-year-old daughter a lot, the virtues of sleep, the virtues of family. Um, and then the kind of like last one, I guess, would just be the recovery aspect is something we've learned in CrossFit. Competitive CrossFit has evolved so much and there's kind of like, we call it the rich froning era, I would get, I would say. And then the post-rich era, and it has nothing to do with rich. It's just kind of when it happened is people got more serious and got more educated about recovery. And it's not about how hard you can train necessarily. It's about how hard you can train and then wake up and do it again tomorrow. And there's so much of that that kind of transfers over to general health for regular folks as well. And we just don't, that's not something normal people talk about is just the ability to mentally, emotionally, and physically recover. Those three things are under underrated in my opinion. So you must have such a unique perspective. You've worked with Dave Castro, you work with Annie, so, you know, these real OGs in the CrossFit space. As we talked about before we hit record, I started in 06, but never a competitive CrossFit or just, it was the means to an end as far as being a great firefighter, although as good as good a firefighter as I can be. Which is what was, CrossFit was designed for, by the way. Yeah. Like exactly that. Yeah. And that's what I saw. So it was from the main site originally. It was a firefighter that, you know, brought me into the fray. Um, and then from 06 to now, I've watched this kind of undulation of good and bad, you know, and it's not 
oh, it's CrossFit that did this, but I've seen myself make mistakes. I became a coach. I saw myself make mistakes as a coach, as an athlete, um, you know, injuries. But then I feel now there's a real maturation, removing some of the uh, corporate choices of CrossFit that, you know, have disappointed me personally, James Gearing, um, recently. Um, but I mean, the actual philosophy that was at the core of it, I feel like now the coaches are really starting to learn how to coach properly and we're, we're able to temper egos that walk through the door. So what have you seen? And then, you know, feel free to bring in these amazing people that you've worked alongside as far as some of the, the, the good and the bad of this journey that it's passed through so far. In terms of coaching, like how the quality of coaching? Well, I would say probably the impact on the body because I'll give my personal perspective, main site stuff, it was awesome, but we just weren't very good at doing the movements. But then when the game started getting big, I saw everyone walking through the door wanting to be the next. And Froning is what I used to call them. Oh, his, mm-hmm. his Froning Jr., another one. And then they'd break their shoulders and then we wouldn't see him again because they wouldn't freaking listen to, to what we were saying. They, I need to do butterfly pull-ups. No, you don't. You need to do pull-up pull-ups. Mm, you know? Okay. So I have a very interesting take on this and it's entirely a consequence of a, the last book I wrote with Ben, which is called Unlocking Potential. And it's a leadership book, but we spend a decent amount of time talking about leadership through the context of his gym, CrossFit New England, specifically through the coaches and his staff there and how he's um, kind of taught them, built this like staff of elite CrossFit coaches that, you know, his goal for CFNE is to be the best gym in the world. And one of the things that we realized while writing the book is that it all comes back down to trust, all of it. Leadership is trust. And so you can't have somebody, a future Froning, walk into your gym and tell you, I want to be the next Froning. I want to learn how to do butterfly pull-ups. As a coach, you can't tell somebody, no, you don't. You're not going to be that. You don't need to do butterfly pull-ups. That shit's bad for your shoulder. Because the bottom line is it all depends on their goals. And if you tell someone without a relationship with them, no, you don't want to be the next Froning. No, you can't be the next Froning. No, you don't need to do butterfly pull-ups. You have no credit with them at all. Like, why should they believe you? Why should they take you at face value? So that to me, that's not on the members. Like when they hurt their shoulder, that's not because they were being an idiot doing butterfly pull-ups. That's because the coach didn't properly connect with them, understand their goals, understand why they want to be the next Froning, why they want to do butterfly pull-ups. You have to you have to build a relationship with somebody. You have to demonstrate that you truly care. What is the quote? Like nobody cares how much you know unless they know how much you care. That is the ultimate CrossFit coach mantra. It should be for every single person. You just cannot be an effective coach unless you have that baseline level of trust. So at at CFNE, I coached there for three years and everybody, all the coaches on staff have a class that they coach every single day. And we did not rotate the schedule my classes were 5.30 and 6.30 in the morning, every morning for three years. And the idea behind that was that, you know, even though it's brutal to wake up at 4.30 every single morning, like those athletes, those 60 athletes that I coached every day, I coached them every day. I knew their injuries. I knew their one rep maxes. I knew I could just tell by their body language if they were having a rough day and I needed to not kind of push them too hard. And I could tell the people that wanted to be challenged and pushed and all of that is so important in terms of getting people to live their become the best version of themselves. You got to have that trust and you can't do anything without it. 
See, that's really interesting because when this was all happening, I was a very new coach. And so, you know, I, I would like to think I've evolved. doesn't mean I'm there yet, but I've evolved from, from then. But that makes a lot of sense because I've always taught my own class, which is basically like a tactical strength conditioning class. And that was absolutely my community and my tribe. And, you know, there was a trust. You knew that. But I would cover CrossFit classes. And this is when I would interact with some of these people. And inside, I'm just face palming, you know, like you're going to get hurt. But I mean, you're absolutely right. I'm sure if I got to go back again and really, you know, sit down with them, because that's what I do with my class sometimes. We just take sandbags to the top of the parking garage in Ocala. And then, uh, all right. And we'll just go by, check in, you know, why are you here? You know, how's it going? What's going on in your personal life? And people don't expect that from a CrossFit class, but it doesn't have to be exercise every single time. I would argue that it shouldn't like, or that, that element should be included in maybe not every day might get a little overbearing depending on your demographic, but that should be a part of, if you're a CrossFit coach, that should be part of your curriculum. It is not about just coaching, you know, the workout on the whiteboard and teaching the movements. And then like, we'll see a you know, tomorrow. It is about educating them and kind of pushing them and challenging them to think about how they want to live their life for the other 23 hours that they're not in the gym. Because those are the, all the decisions that they make in those 23 hours are affecting how they show up at the gym. So how recovered they are, what their mindset is, um, how they feel about carrying a heavy ass bag up to the top of a garage. Like, why do we do this? Like, let's dig into that. Helping people understand themselves. Self-awareness is the whole bag. If you truly, the people that truly understand themselves are the most authentic and they, and they enjoy their lives the most is you can't really connect with another person until you've really connected and understand yourself. And so like some of the coolest people I know, Annie, Tia comes to mind are just so authentic because they know their values. They know what they're about. They've really like done the work they've dug in when bad stuff happens, when like stuff makes them uncomfortable Instead of ignoring it, they look at it, they reflect on it, they understand, they kind of figure out what about this thing is making me uncomfortable. And that is like, that is the real CrossFit curriculum that I think is kind of missing in a lot of gyms is challenging the members in a way that isn't fitness, but through fitness, taking kind of like the, the lessons of, hey, this is why we do hard things and applying it to the way that we live our lives outside the gym. So with that, going back to the kind of original question, Again, my observation was it was very pure early on main site. Then there's a group of people that thrive in competition and the, the games and, and, you know, bacon beatdowns we talked about and some of these other ones around have a place and people love them. But I still feel like that's a very small percentage of, you know, the people that CrossFit is for. As you said, firefighters, police, military that are never going to do a CrossFit competition. And then now you're seeing even more of a an inclusion of, you know, the elderly. A lot of the videos were, you know, getting in and out of chairs mm-hmm. and picking up a, yeah, you know, that a was, bucket. It was a weird time, but yeah, <laughs> you can tell that the intent behind it is good. Yes. So again, um, you know, what have you seen as far as that, the, the, the messaging, I guess, from the whole community and, and who they're kind of trying to encapsulate? I think, I think CrossFit's still trying to figure that out, to be honest. And you can kind of tell just from just the change in direction and how often that's happened over the last six years now, you know, like it's been ever since they got rid of regionals at the end of the 2018 season, it's really been quite in flux, right? In 2019, we did the big national champions thing. We kind of got rid of the games and the kind of marching orders from Greg were essentially like, we want this, we want CrossFit to be more of a longevity thing for normal folks. And we think that the CrossFit games is 
almost um, intimidating people out of coming through the door. And then, you know, the games athletes at the time were almost kind of like offended by that. Like, you know, we're, I started CrossFit. I'm an, I'm an example of the opposite. I saw it on TV. I saw the games on TV and I was like, wait, that's what you guys do? Oh, that looks really cool. Like I want to, I was inspired to start CrossFit because of the games, knowing that I was never going to go to the games. I just thought that I hadn't been exposed to that. And so the, the games athletes felt as though they were bringing visibility to, you know, this wonderful thing that could change lives. So you could see both sides there. And, you know, then Greg left and they now it seems like we're building the games back up. And it really seems like CrossFit is trying to figure out how to, I mean, I think the end goal is the same, right? Like everybody, it's such an amazing, perfect, almost flawless methodology. It works so well. If you show up and you really try, it's almost impossible not to get fitter through CrossFit if you have a good coach. And we all want CrossFit to become bigger. We want it to become more global. And it's just a question of how do we do that? Is it by making the games bigger? Is it by, you know, focusing on the affiliate community and investing in the coaches? I've never worked for CrossFit HQ, so I can't speak to the strategies. And I know they're in a transition period right now with the new CEO who seems incredibly competent and invested. It's hard to say, but I think everybody's end goal is the same. Like we want this thing to be bigger because it it does change and increase the value of so many people's lives. I just wish they get rid of Monster. I gotta say that that's, that sends a very mixed message about the health community. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I would say the same thing about you know some of these tech companies, and I don't want to alienate anyone. I think you know what Whoop is doing is really cool, and there's so much awesome technology out there. But at the end of the day, like that's not what CrossFit was started as, and I think there's almost like for a while there with maybe the tenure of Eric Rosa, who, you know, in fairness, has a tech background. Like, what did we all expect? This tech guy coming into CrossFit, of course, CrossFit got a little bit more techie there. And I'm glad to see that we seem to be moving away from that and bringing Dave Castro back into the fold to kind of be this big ambassador going through the affiliate community, listening to people, listening to affiliate owners, asking them what they need, asking what they want. Um, There's been an incredible um, kind of push within CrossFit to make the affiliate fee, which I think is $3,000 a year now, to make that mean something more. So coaches are getting programming. They're getting a lot more um, educational material from their regional um, representatives than they used to in the past. And I can't speak to the, the specifics of it, but I, I was hearing about it from the games. Chase Ingram is a really good person to ask because he's one of the guys, uh, I think he leads the Southwest um, region, whatever they're called. They're doing some really cool stuff for the affiliate owners. And I think that over time, that's going to really help out a lot um, in terms of the reach of um, the community, getting more people into CrossFit. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not just to pick on CrossFit. The World Cup was sponsored by McDonald's. You know, I think we just, if we're going to, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, if we're going to make this a wellness message, we have to make sure that incorporates everything there's so many great sponsors that you could have that probably are very affluent as well that would still align with those wellness values but an energy drink or a fast food company maybe is not the best yeah it dilutes you you know it's not what you talk about it's what you tolerate and we are a company you look at all the crossfit the original literature and it's all so anti it's the opposite of the antithesis of something like Monster and Whoop. And it's it's about the whiteboard and the stopwatch and like 
how how bad you want it. And that is the kind of essence of CrossFit. And I think the further away we get from that, whether it's Monster or Whoop or whatever, like we need to stay focused on the magic of what makes it work. And that's the coaches and it's the community, the affiliate community and the the methodology as written from the beginning. Now, one nut I would love to crack as a coach. And again, you know, I have this this group that I, I work with, but I see this a lot in our main CrossFitters inside. People that show up three, four times a week and they've remained the same weight, if not gained weight. With these amazing minds that you get to work with, with that kind of athlete, what are some of the solutions that they offer you guys as coaches? In terms of like addressing the lack of progress with that athlete? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's a nutritional thing, clearly. But how Not necessarily, you'd be surprised. I mean, it could be a number of things. It could be, um, how much are you sleeping? Um, what are your goals is where I would start. Like if this person is completely content and doesn't mind that they've been doing CrossFit for three years and their body composition hasn't changed or, you know, kind of weirdly has gone in the other direction. If they're, if they're cool with it and it's just the best hour of their day and they treat it as a social thing. A lot of people do that. Cool, man. Like I'm not going to, um, act like there's a problem but if the person if the athlete approaches the coach and you know brings it up hey i've been here for a couple years and i'm not making the same kind of progress as this other person that started around the same time what's the deal there's a lot of questions there it's like first off what are you eating what's your nutrition look like outside the gym like are we educated in terms of macronutrients do you know um, how many calories are in a gram of fat like let's start there there's a lot of like nutritional there's a huge nutritional gap in knowledge in the United States, probably everywhere. But I didn't know what a macronutrient was when I started CrossFit. And so that that's probably the greatest gift that CrossFit has given me is just nutrition knowledge. So start there as a gym. I think every gym should have um, nutrition almost as like a part of the onboarding course. So it's just discussed in kind of the same um, almost indelible from the fitness and the programming should be these discussions around nutrition nutrition challenges are a great way to like introduce that but it's also you know what else is going on how stressed are you what is your sleep like because if your body is holding on to stress you are just unable to lose weight and i won't use her name but there was an athlete a games athlete that trained at crossfit new england for a number of years and incredible games athlete felt like she was a little bit too big to be competitive in the sport now because you just have to, there's so much high level gymnastics and she was taller. And so she wanted to lean out. And so she was working with a nutritionist, um, a well-known nutritionist that works with a lot of games athletes. And his first question was, she was like, why am I not losing weight? Why can't I lean out? I've stopped eating essentially not stopped eating, but I've, you know, working out less. I've cut my diet way down. My macros are much lower. I'm not losing weight. What is going on? And he was like, well, you know, what else is going on in your life? Like, how's, how are things at home? How's your family? And, you know, turns out like I'm going through a hard time with this person and this has been really challenging. And he's like, oh, well, that's why you're not losing weight. Like you're super stressed about this relationship in your life. And when she took steps to address that, all the weight fell off. And so it's really like people assume that it has to be either a lack of nutrition or a lack of exercise, but there are so many other factors that go into your ability to like gain or lose weight. And there are like those five elements. It's, it's nutrition, it's sleep, 
it's your actual physical fitness, like your training, your connections with other human beings and your recovery. And if any of those are like really dramatically off, you're going to have a hard time with your health. Like it's going to, it's going to slow stuff down. It's going to make stuff harder. Which is what we see in the first responder profession. They don't sure, sleep, you guys don't get to sleep. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's it's a structural thing. Like your whole community is essentially set up to where it's like, hey, listen, I need you guys to be awake a lot and just never break down and have perfect performance. Like that's just a recipe for, you just can't do it. Evolution has prevented that for us. We have to sleep. So with Ben's athletes, obviously, you know, Annie and Katrin and some of the other ones. Annie is not one of Ben's athletes. Oh, he's not. Okay. Annie is not. Um, she works with um, her coach in Iceland. Um, his name is Yami. He's incredible as well. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Thank you for correcting that. Um, with um, yeah, a lot of the elite athletes that he does work with, talk to me about the rest and recovery side. Mm-hmm. One of the, the messages that I'm trying to help tell the first responder community is you know, the, the basically devastating elements of lack of sleep and, and high stress, et cetera. Of course, someone has to be there to protect our community when everyone else is in bed. To me, we just don't give our responders enough rest and recovery between their shifts. You know, I think if you're going to be awake for 24 hours, you should have an, enough time to recover. And the 48 hours that we supposedly get, which we don't, it's actually 40 hours if you look at it. It just isn't enough. And every sleep medicine expert on here so far has said exactly the same thing. But coming from a, an athletic lens, what is the rest and recovery that's prescribed to these high-level athletes so they don't break, so they can perform at the highest level? Well, it's not. It's definitely not one thing. It's a lot of different things. Sleep is obviously the most important. And when it comes to sleep, it's all about you know all of this. Everything that is goes into being a high-level athlete, whether you're competing for the CrossFit Games, you're training for the pole vault, the Olympics, doesn't matter. To be the best you can be, it's all about identifying what are the things that are in my control that I can affect and um, influence and that are going to make me better. And it's all about honing in on those things. But the ability to hone in on those things also requires you to identify the things that are not in your control that you cannot change and to let all of that go. Because that is kind of where the stress comes. Like if you, you know, if you have no control over your schedule and you're constantly stressing about your schedule, It's not doing any good. It's like, okay, let's figure out what about the schedule can I control to improve my performance? And that's kind of like where the sleep starts. So it's like, okay, I can control how cold my bedroom is. I can control um, whether I wear earplugs or not. If you're really, I'm sensitive to, I'm a light sleeper. So if I don't sleep with earplugs in, I don't sleep as well. That's dumb. That's in my control. If I'm not getting enough sleep because my dog keeps waking me up, that's on me. That is something within my control that I can take steps to adjust. So it's about understanding sleep is not just sleep. It's not about just lying down in your bed and hoping for the best. Taking that like Jocko Willink extreme ownership and, you know, understanding what it is that leads to more deep sleep and taking steps to do that. Don't be on your phone for 30 minutes. It sounds dumb, but that's what the science says. So put your phone down, make your room really dark, turn the AC down, make it cold, Cover your eyes with a thing if you're sensitive to light. Um, put earplugs in. All of those things are things that you can do, anyone can do to get to maximize the sleep that they are able to get. So if it's five hours is the best you can do, let's make sure that we get as much deep sleep out of those five hours as we can. And it comes down to it's nutrition as well. Like I know, like, you know, being a first responder is a lot of crazy hours and it's not conducive to having a really great diet. But also some of that is in your control. Like you know, do we have an hour to meal prep? Can we go to Whole Foods and get 
you know, some chicken and some sweet potatoes. What can we do to make what we have better? And that's, you can apply that to, to everything. And that is kind of Ben's philosophy when it comes to his eye level athletes is what's in our control. How can we like really like push on those levers and maximize our potential through what we're able to do? Well, I want to stay with Annie for a second. In my mind, I can see, I think it was the first ever games or maybe the first ever televised games. And I believe she was struggling to or did snatch 135, if I got that right. 115, and but yes. 115, okay. And then most recently, I watched the, the, the last documentary and she put up 200. Yep, 200 pounds. And she is how many years older? Yeah. Yep, just had a baby, uh, I think 11 months before, not even a whole year. And, you know, it's obviously a decade older. Okay, so talk to me about, again, your lens. Because, I mean, you've got a very unique thing. It'd be different if I was talking to to Ben or to Annie, but you kind of getting all these different perspectives of how they are able to foster longevity. Because one thing that happens in my community, I'm sitting here with aching knees right now is that we break. And it's, again, a lot of the the lack of rest and recovery. And I'm just fascinated with some of these high-level athletes that, that have figured it out. So, you know, if you just want to use Annie as an example, how has she been able to not only keep improving, but also avoid the injuries that usually set most people back? Well, that is a huge question. And that is the subject of a project that Annie and I have been working on for the last year and will continue to work on for probably a solid, you know, another year here. And the answer, that is really kind of the question that drove the project to begin was how the hell, because she's the only one, she's the only one CrossFit Games athlete, male or female, that has been able to compete at the highest level uh, and not just participating, but driving this thing driving this sport forward for 14 years so that it's that's the right question i don't know that i anyone will ever completely know the answer when it comes to annie but it's the thing that i noticed the most when i was in iceland was just how diligent about it she is she's so intentional about every single thing she does when she shows up in the gym there's no box checking it's what's what's on the menu today what's the programming and every single piece gets absolutely all of her. It's um, how can we maximize this? Frederick is co- her her husband or boyfriend, I'm sorry. Um, her coach, she has eyes on her constantly. She's incredibly coachable. Anybody gives her a smallest cue and it's, okay, let me try that. Let me work on that. Um, but she's also, I think something that makes Annie different is that she doesn't just, she's not going to just say yes just because her coach or her partner or whoever said, let's do this. She's going to ask why. She wants to understand why. And if she doesn't agree, she's going to push back. And then kind of as a unit, the, her team agrees and comes to some sort of conclusion. And that's what they're going to try. And I think the, you know, how involved she is in her own coaching is part of it. She's also just spends an incredible amount of time on recovery, listens to her body. Um, she's, you know, we would when we were in Iceland, we would train with her and we would show up at nine to the gym. We would start training around 10. Like she would spend an hour on doing, you know, she'd get on the bike, get loose, get warm. And then she would spend the next 40 minutes rolling, scraping, um, doing mobility, stretching. Um, And then after that, it was, you know, working up to her heavy weight at incredibly light loads, loads that somebody like Annie would, you would think you'd just look at it and be like, Oh, that's silly. But the whole time she's being incredibly intentional with her empty barbell 
um, dialing in positions, dialing in technique to where when we do load the bar up, like her movement is flawless, her body is primed. And she learned that the hard way, like a lot of us have. In 2013, she almost had a career-ending injury because she was training late night. She was two times game champion. And she has all this pressure on her to win for a third time. And she's got all these media responsibilities. So she's much busier. So she's training at night. I think it's like 6.30 at night. She's at CrossFit Reykjavik. And her programming, she doesn't want to be there at all. She doesn't want to train. She's exhausted. Frederick is coming in from Denmark the next day. And he's like, just wait for me. We'll train. We'll do all everything tomorrow when we're rested. And she's just kind of at this um, point, mental point where I think we can all relate to where it just feels if I don't train, I'm taking the easy way out. I'm being lazy. Like that's not what champions do. This pressure to like do the right thing. And the right thing isn't always, you know, what it says on paper. Like you have to listen to your body. You have to like be able to warm up properly and do the right thing right. And she just wanted to do it. And so she, you know, threw some weight on the bar. She um, ended up PRing. She's doing the CrossFit total, which is a one rep max back squat, deadlift, and strict press. So I think she did the strict press first, PR'd her strict press. Very exciting, considering that she didn't want to be doing training at all. PR's her back squat. Next, feeling on top of the world by the time she gets to the deadlift. And deadlifting is Annie's absolute wheelhouse. She's so good at deadlifting. So she's like, well, shit, I'm going for the hat trick. And she takes these really big jumps when she's warming up her deadlift. Um, she was giving it to me in kilos, which are lost on me. But, <laughs> you know, for the Americans, I think it was, it was probably like a 135 to 185 to, you know, 265. And it got heavy really fast. And she goes to do a deadlift and feels something pop. And immediately is in so much pain, has to lie down. Ambulance is called. She ends up being taken to the hospital from CrossFit Reykjavik in an ambulance where she receives a number of scans and all of her doctors are essentially tell her that you know, she has this bulging disc. It's, it's not good, not um, necessarily a surgical candidate, but um, probably going to have a really bad time lifting heavy for the rest of her career. Might be able to continue to do CrossFit, but probably not ever going to be as strong as she was before. May be able to compete again, maybe not. We're not sure, but unlikely. And she, during that time where it was, you know, there was a couple months there where she wasn't sure whether she was going to be able to continue being a games athlete, kind of decided just like, no, I'm going to figure out how to get back. And a huge piece of that was finding these two physios based out of the UK, um, Max Martin and Andrew Martin. I think they're brothers. And they really worked with her. They did a ton of body work. She flew to London, I think once a week to get body work done um, by, with these guys. And they, over the next year, kind of rehabbed her back um, from a place where all the doctors said was impossible. And, you know, she's back at the games. But that was pretty, she had the fortunate, it was fortunate that ha that happened so early on in her career because it really taught her this lesson about longevity that you can't disrespect the warm-up, you can't disrespect the body work. And I think that's it. I would argue that Annie's series of injuries and kind of unfortunate events, it was first it was that back injury, and then everybody's kind of aware of what happened to her, all the CrossFitters, CrossFit community is aware of what happened to her in 2015 during Murph, where she had a heat stroke, taught her a lot about her body. And, you know, she's had a baby, and that coming back from that has taught her a lot about her body and without those three really challenging like arguably terrible injuries 
I don't think that Annie Thor's daughter has the longevity that she has because she just doesn't, she hasn't learned as much. And I think that's, it's such a cool lesson is you need, you need those terrible experiences. They, they teach us, they fortify us. They're there to instruct us and running away from them or um, regarding them as unfortunate is the wrong thing. Like there's something very valuable that is teaching you if you are kind of lucid enough to keep your eyes open and look for it. So I had a near career ending back injury in, I think it was 20, oh my goodness, 15, somewhere around then. I was lifting a patient and, <clears throat> excuse me, and it wasn't a very large gentleman. Um, ironically, it was a hyperventilation as well. It wasn't even a real emergency, but that person at that time thought they were dying. Um, and uh, same thing, tore, I think it was three ligaments in my back, had bulging discs and everything. Went the traditional route initially. Um, when I say traditional, I refused meds and stuff, but I went through the PT, traditional exercises, and really wasn't seeing great improvement. And I found this thing called foundation training, Dr. Eric Goodman. And it was incredible. And actually, I've just started doing it diligently again because I'm getting ready for a around the world um, thing with a bunch of special operations people. But cool. um, mobility when, you know, your late 40s is the most important thing. So when I say my knees are aching, I'm addressing that through this. I know they will not ache again. But I didn't just heal my back. I got back to being able to lift as much, if not more, than I could before because I've found okay, what, why did I get hurt? We don't just normally get hurt. So what was it that was weak? And how do I not just get the pain to go away, but to actually fix it and make it stronger? Get to the root of it. Yeah. And, it, and the problem is that most people in Annie's position, in my position, are probably told, well, it's going to be surgery. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's just so irresponsible. Some, I get it. Some, you just, you know, you're beyond yeah, of course, any surgery, help. Like Brooke Wells needed surgery. Yeah. yeah. I, I've had the same injury. I needed surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're right. Like a lot of times it's just a Band-Aid and it's not the the crux of the issue. Absolutely. So, but back to your point, pain being the best teacher, sadly, it takes us getting hurt to really, and then you need the pain and you need the humility as well. Yes. Uh, just being injured, going through something hard, not, you know, obviously we've been using injury as an example, but, you know, getting fired from your job, um, having a failed relationship, like a marriage ending, all those things are objectively terrible. They're all, there's all, it's all an opportunity to learn more about yourself and to understand, get to the crux of it, what went wrong. And kind of the pattern recognition there is the key to longevity for everything, longevity for relationships, um, athletes, all of it. You got to understand yourself. You got to be able to like when that stuff happens, take a hard look, do some analysis, come to the right conclusion, ask some people. Because without it, it's just a bad thing that happens to you. And, you know, there's no, there's absolutely no, nothing that says you're going to become this wise owl just because something bad happened to you. You got to, um, you got to do some work there to be able to pull something good out of the silver lining. Mm -hmm. And then the, I think the stark reality is it's going to take time as well. Yes. Like if you want to rehab an injury, you have to understand it's going to hurt a lot for a while. Yep. But when you're on the other side, and I've got firefighter friends that have had, multiple back surgeries and they just get worse and worse and worse and it breaks my heart because i wish i could have been side by side with them when i got hurt and be like hey let's give this an actual real try before you consider anything else and i don't know maybe they would have still had to have surgery who's yeah, everybody's injury is totally different so i would never want to you know say so and so is getting worse just because they had the wrong mindset or whatever like 
people, there are legitimate injuries that are incredibly hard to fix. And, you know, the science has gotten better, but we're still diagnostically not flawless. It's sometimes it's hard to figure out the root cause of something. So it wouldn't, for all the people that are actually in pain and struggling and trying to find the silver lining, it's incredibly annoying for somebody to be like, oh, just look on the bright side. It's all going to be fine. It's like, oh, I just want to slap those people. But <laughs> if you have the kind of presence of mind to understand that you can feel annoyed by that and also still continue to um, be committed to look for small ways to pull something good out of that. That's the kind of the healthy mindset, not saying that you should enjoy being injured. It fucking sucks. Yes. It <laughs> but does. you can't, to- you can't just, I don't know, give in to the pity party and the victim mindset because you never gonna, you're not gonna learn anything. You're not going to get better. If anything, you know, it's a pattern that's going to repeat itself. If it's just the victim mindset, that's not very unhelpful and a good way to hate your life forever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think people don't understand the mental health cost of an injury, especially when you are an athlete or a tactical athlete. It's an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. It's like, who am I if I'm not, if I can't be a firefighter, if I can't serve my country, if I can't compete at the CrossFit Games, this is the core of who I am. Can't do it anymore. I totally get it. Like it is a, it's an identity crisis. What do you do? You have to figure out what your values are and figure out a way to move forward still be you i'm lucky enough to not have had a a, you know done it maybe on a pretty minor scale a couple times but nothing like um what a lot of like service members have gone through yeah well i think the other thing was you know deciding that you're going to try your damnedest to to rehab an injury is it gives you a goal yes and when you're a firefighter for example we're fixers so when you're lying there in pain and you're letting some man or woman in a white coat dictate your entire trajectory, you just lost all your autonomy. Mm-hmm. But if you say, fuck it, I'm going to try all these things first, because I went to chiropractic, I went to PT, I was doing this foundation training. Um, it worked so well, I ended up flying over, getting certified, coming back and teaching all my fire department the same stuff. So if they were hurt, it would help. If they weren't hurt yet, it would stop them getting hurt. One guy told me it was shit. He got a back injury about three weeks later. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I rest I mean, my case. I've had a back injury as well. I have, it's actually a spinal condition. It's called spondylolisthesis, which essentially means that um, there's a disc um, kind of poking into my spinal column, about wherever L5, S1, L4, S1, something like that, lower back. One of my discs is kind of bulging into the spinal column. So that particular part of the spinal column is a half of the size that it should be. So if I move poorly under heavy loads or don't take care of my body, that it you know, the nerves are right there. It's so much easier to piss it off. And it's happened to me where I've had, you know, this nerve pain, the sciatica, like down my leg and had to get three cortisone shots. And when I went to go see the doctor originally, spinal surgeon walks in, he's holding my chart and he looks at my chart and he's like, hold on, I have the wrong chart. I'll be right back. So he closes the door, comes back in two minutes later. Nope, this is the right chart. I just thought you were going to be a 65-year-old woman on Medicare. It's like, what? It's like, you're. can you walk? Like, your spine is, this is not good. And, you know, of course, I can walk in pain, but it's not the end of the world. And he's like, what do you do for fitness? Like, what do you, do you work out? I'm like, yeah, I do CrossFit. And listen, man, like, spare me the lecture. I'm going to continue to do CrossFit, whether you say <laughs> it's dangerous or not. And he actually was the first surgeon I've ever talked to, doctor, other than maybe Sean Rocket. That was like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it because that's the only reason you're not a 
on my surgery operating table right now is like your core is really strong and that's what's keeping you healthy even though you have the spine that's by all accounts just not healthy and i've taken that very seriously like even when i've gone through periods where i'm like really heavy on writing books and i'm only working out twice a week like making sure that we're front squatting because that recruits a lot of the core and you know not just the abs but like all core lower back midsection all of it and just being very mindful that that's an always going to be an incredible incredibly important part of my longevity is keeping my core strong so that my jacked up spine can has like a layer or two of armor around it. And it's, it's the same for everybody. Like, even if you don't have a messed up spine, everybody's got a messed up something and figuring out how to um, mitigate that and live with it is the key. And, you know, I was lucky I had CrossFit and I had the surgeon that helped me kind of like connect the two that this is X, Y, Z is related to ABC and that's kind of the game is everybody's got to figure out what it is for their body that they need to stay healthy. Well, speaking of surgeons, Dr. Sean Rocket was on the show, an amazing man. Love um, Sean Rocket. And he was the guy who responded to Brooke Wells when her elbow went out. So how did you meet Sean and talk to me about your relationship? Well, Sean Rocket has reduced my elbow as well. <laughs> and one of my favorite Sean stories, we met at, at CrossFit New England. He would take my 6.30 a.m. class on occasion, come in in his scrubs, you know, before, you know, he started his day of operating on knees and shoulders, take class. You know, I would see him at the gym all the time. So we were friends. He knew that I had had a um, elbow surgery, reconstructive elbow surgery in D.C. a couple years before moving to Boston. And it was a Saturday, like partner workout, there was a bunch of people in class, teams of three. And it was one of these things where it's like, you know, in a whatever window, you do as many deadlifts as a team as you, you do 50 deadlifts at a weight and then you do 50 squats at a weight and then you do 50 like jerks. And then, you know, if you finish that, then the weight goes up and you do the same thing. And so we're doing the jerks, my team, and I have a barbell over my head and all of a sudden my elbow dislocates underneath the barbell. And I kind of like let out this involuntary shriek, drop the bar. Sean looks over, comes running across the gym, grabs my arm, looks at it, um, feels it out, just twists and pulls and reduces it on the spot, and then walks back over to his team and his barbell and picks it back up and <laughs> continues doing push jerks. And I was just like, okay. So I picked the bar back up, stopped doing push jerks, but started doing something else. <laughs> and so that was kind of like my, my bonding moment with Dr. Rocket, but he's worked at the games as one of the lead orthopedic surgeons for a very long time and so it's fun we're always seeing each other there but um yeah he was there and reduced brooks elbow in real time and that was quite something <laughs> absolutely well speaking of you know the, the pain injury um insult to the human body i guess would be the the kind of global topic i had leah barso on the show and if you've come across her before but she's kind of involved with the birth fit community oh cool no i don't know her but it was a great conversation cool. and we had a, a really good chat about um you know pregnancy and postpartum health and, and the mental health as well another observation this isn't just limited to the u.s but there seems to be a growing acceptance for you know increased obesity during pregnancy now as a paramedic you know we see the preeclampsia we see the uh, gestational diabetes and all these things and Conversely, you see a lot of CrossFit gyms, you see these incredibly fit women get pregnant, have a healthy child, and then get back to work pretty soon. 
what has been your perspective or some of the women that you've worked alongside as far as some of the messaging when it comes to health during pregnancy that the general population is getting and maybe if there's anything different within the CrossFit community? I'm like tentative to speak about this just because I've never been pregnant. I have no children and so I've never gone through that. So I'd never want to, um, I'm just not an expert on it at all. But I have coached pregnant athletes. It's something that um, we're trained on as CrossFit coaches on how to how to coach pregnant athletes. I would say that the literature is very much a work in progress in terms of like the science. And, you know, 15 years ago, women in the America would get pregnant and the medical advice is essentially just like you're on bed rest, like you're dying, don't move, like be, you know, treat yourself. And that's, you know, obviously a recipe for weight gain. And, you know, if you're just um, capitulating to every um, hormonal impulse, like, yeah, of course, like you're going to you know, get put on some weight, you're, there's going to be potential issues in the pregnancy, like, if you're, especially if you're not active, if you've gone from an active lifestyle to a sedentary lifestyle, or it's just not good. So the, the cool thing about CrossFit is we've been, the community is kind of normalized more activity during pregnancy um, than was, no, was typical just 10 years ago. And I think that's very, very cool. Probably much healthier. I think it's not, it's not socially acceptable at this stage to, you know, tell a pregnant woman to count her macros. But I think keeping an eye on your nutrition and not um, just eating absolutely everything that you want just because you're pregnant and you know, being more intentional about what your nutrition is, like definitely listen to your body, but have a plan, talk to a doctor or a nutritionist. Like there's so many available. M2 is great. WAG, you know, every, there's a solution for everybody in terms of online nutrition coaching now. So that's available for, for pregnant women. I know there are specialists within those nutrition companies that work with pregnant women and have a lot of like really great insight. I'm sure that Annie worked with somebody to that effect. I can't speak to exactly who it was. I'm not sure. But postpartum, it's, it's all about, you know, you're, you have to treat it. Annie said once she started thinking about it like an injury, it became much more doable. And, you know, your hormones are raging, you're, you know, you feel like a totally different person and postpartum is different for every, everyone, but, you know, listening to your body and just kind of taking it easy, understanding as you ease back into fitness that your body isn't the body that you had before and having some compassion for that and slowly building it back up. At the end of the day, like the body remembers, you will, you are able to get back and in, into the gym and do all the things that you did before for the most part, like in most cases, everyone you know, is obviously different, but I think just the understanding that it is a process and it takes time and, um, to be incredibly intentional about it is the, the way. Well, Leah was talking about it literally being a rebirth of the mother as well. And it makes perfect sense. You literally had another human inside you. If it was your first child, you're never going to be just a woman anymore now mm. you're a mother so, yes. and even the father obviously but we don't have quite the same physiological yes response there. yeah and then with the mental health one it's interesting i forget who it was now but there's a couple of psychologists that i've asked this there's actually seems to be a strong correlation between you know early trauma and postpartum depression as well like you know, childhood trauma yes Very exactly because there's the assumption like you were absolutely fine you had a kid now you're depressed 
instead of going, well, this did this amplify something that was actually already beneath. So Leia was talking about, you know, if you're even thinking about pregnant, getting pregnant, maybe now is a time to start, you know, visiting a counselor and just digging in a little bit and addressing some of these issues before you start this incredibly, um, you know, challenging psychological life, journey that's going to... Life-changing journey. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's kind of like what I was saying before about the self-awareness, especially as a parent, you know, if you don't understand the parts about your childhood that, you know, maybe cause problems for you as an adult, like, I love my parents so much. They're such great parents. But they told us growing up that we were we were supposed to be the top 1%. Like we were, they wanted us to be the best of the best and whatever we chose to do, whatever that was. And I understand now what they were trying to do. But as, as kids, the, the three of us heard, you are the best at what you do. And there was this overdeveloped sense of self-importance for I think all three of us in our 20s. And that was something we really had to break ourselves of. And it was not easy. And, you know, it that kind of thing makes relationships really hard. And, you know, you feel angry sometimes and you don't really understand why and it's because we didn't understand ourselves and we didn't have you know until you have you understand yourself it's very hard to exercise emotional control to understand that thoughts and feelings that you have are not who you are they're just things and they're going to pass and it's okay to feel them it's more important to understand them than it is to express them and as a anybody you know getting pregnant and getting ready to raise a child, you have to know yourself inside out and backwards so that you can do the thing, like you can raise another human being in a way that is healthy and um, not traumatizing. And all of you, you're just so easily triggered if you don't understand yourself. Absolutely. Well, we touched on identity. I want to make sure that we hit this as well. I think we started talking about this before we hit record. There was an incredible documentary called The Weight of Goal, and it was Michael Phelps and some other, you know, athletic phenoms. Um, sadly, one of them that was on the documentary ended up taking their own life by the time the documentary was concluded. Um, but it was literally, you've got these people that are being groomed in whatever sport they're in, you know, I mean, voluntarily, they, they, they want to be mm-hmm. in that sport. But then they get to that pinnacle. I mean, Michael Phelps won how many gold medals for this country? All of them. Just, yeah, exactly. And... Then, you know, then you're, you're the latest thing until you're not. And the loss of identity is a huge issue in the fire service and law enforcement, military, etc. Because as we progress through our career, there's a danger that you forget that you are James Gearing, the firefighter, and you become a firefighter. And then you transition out, you get hurt, you get fired, whatever it is. And now no one cares what you did, you know. Talk to me about that kind of insight that you've had with the the people you work alongside and written with on that particular journey for the sports person. I think the common denominator for the people that I've you know done some written projects with is values. When I say, and I've mentioned it a couple times, knowing yourself, understanding yourself, um, it's understanding what your values are, what what makes life worth living to you? What kind of person do you want to be? And um, when it comes to transitioning from one thing to another, I think the people that have the easiest time with transitions, major life transitions like that, are the people that completely understand their values and are able to build a bridge from A to B using those values. And they that, that becomes the bridge that they 
um, can kind of get from this life to that life. And just kind of like, I don't know how to give it a specific example, but an athlete who's transitioning into, you know, say like a, a more like announcer role, a media role, we're still going to maybe be part of this sports world, but we're going to be doing it from a totally different place. Understanding that um, you love the competitive side of things and not just competing for the sake of winning, but competing because it sharpens you because it, um, it challenges you to push past what you thought you could do. And that's really what, that's what gets Annie and Brooke and Katrin out of bed is figuring out how good they can be. You can take that mindset and those values, like this is my professional approach to this thing. And you can, you can be that person and have the same approach to a different thing. And, you know, it, it just, you feel congruent. This is who I was when I was doing this. And just because I can't compete anymore, I'm still fulfilling like these important parts of myself by approaching it this way, the same way that I approached. I think Matt Frazier probably is a great example of this. Here's a guy who has trained at the top of, you know, he's done things that no one had ever done in the sport. He won five times in a row, the CrossFit Games. And he had a very specific way that he trained. He put his entire soul into it. And I know every athlete probably says that they do that. But Matt Frazier set up his entire life to where he didn't need to leave his house. He could maximize every minute of every day towards training and recovery. And he would train in his garage. And his partner, Sammy, like takes care of a lot of the like kind of sponsorship and meal prep and a lot like I know not everybody has that ability to have a partner that can do that do those things for them. But that's what he was able to do. And so that's what he did. And he is, it's been really cool to see how he has transitioned from a athlete role into coaching other CrossFit Games athletes. And he seems to love it. He doesn't seem to miss training. And it's because he has really gone about coaching these, you know, young athletes the same way that he used to train where he gives his entire soul to it. He's such a student of the sport. Like this guy, I bet has spreadsheets and Excel sheets and all sorts of stuff about the, you know, GHD cycle speed. Like he's a true nerd about his craft and you can, the parallels between the way he was as a a coach and, you know, the way that I've seen him coach people at semifinals in the games is very, very cool. And I think probably has some takeaways for people trying to make a similar transition and still maintain their identity. Beautiful. So that aligns with what I ultimately found in myself is I struggle, my ego struggle with not wearing a uniform anymore. And then I actually volunteered in Marion County for a, a split second and I felt like a paramedic ride along, not like a firefighter at all anymore. And then I realized it was the same purpose. I went into the fire service to try and help people. When I was in the fire service, I feel like I did, you know, I made a difference. But then I realized that the fire service itself needed help. The people that wore the uniform needed help. Um, and so the mission hadn't changed, but no one thinks that, you know, no one wants to buy a podcast a calendar, put it that way. You know what I mean? So yeah. <laughs> your ego wearing the magic trousers, yep. I used to call them, that has to get out the way, but then you can realize, okay, I'm still on the same path. It just looks different now. Yeah. I mean, ego, <sighs> ego is so incredibly damaging. One of my favorite books is Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. It's a short, small, easy read. Each chapter is no longer than like three or four tiny pages, but it's just full of examples of um, the difference between um, self-awareness and confidence and just kind of blind ego is 
understanding reality, having a good grasp of reality, having a, the correct perspective. And it's so easy to like have an incorrect perspective or to, to kind of like just choose kind of like selective listening when it comes to reality where you, there is a incongruency between what is and the way you want it to be. And that's where people get into trouble with ego. And it's really an expectations and a kind of like understanding yourself in reality thing, which is, I know I feel like I've kept harping on this, how understanding yourself is so important, but it is because if you don't understand your situation, if you don't fully, if you can't see your own reality because you're blinded by your own sense of importance, you're going to have a hard time connecting with people. You're going to have a hard time. Like you're going to come short, come up short in a lot of your, um, efforts, whatever those are, whether they're athletic or professional or, and you're not going to know why. And that's going to be incredibly frustrating. And ego is, ego is bad, bad news. Everyone should read ego as the enemy. <laughs> well, I want to go back on your timeline for a moment before we end up just talking about, you know, the, the Instagram writing that you did and then the books, but I don't want to miss this opportunity for, you know, you to educate me a little bit. You worked, as you said, on the desk of Iraqi politics. Have I got that right? Yes, it was the Iraq political affairs desk, which was wide ranging. There was different people that did a bunch of different stuff. But yes, I was a postgraduate fellow intern on that desk. Okay. And then you also worked with Syria and Palestine in certain roles. Mostly Palestine, a little bit of Syria here and there um, for the NGO that I worked for, but mostly Palestine. Okay. So just your takeaway from those different roles there's a there's you know usually a couple of narratives in anything to do with the middle east that make their way to our two extremist mainstream media <laughs> um you know outlets that we have i don't know you call them news but the the shows that people you know seem to watch a lot what are some of the things that you learn in those roles that are lesser known that maybe would be good for people to hear, whether it was about the Iraq conflict or the Iraqi people or Palestine or Syria? Uh, probably just keep it high level by saying that most Americans, and it's probably not exclusive to Americans, Westerners have a woefully incomplete knowledge of that region historically. No one understands the history I do. I, the reason I wanted to study it and do it professionally is because I was 16 when nine on 9-11 and I was in high school during the, you know, video announcements when the towers came down and we watched on live TV when the second plane hit and we watched the towers fall down. And I just remember I was only 16. I had no idea. I didn't know myself. I didn't know the world. I had never left Ocala other than, you know, you know, vacation with my parents. I didn't know anything, but it felt unbelievable that a group of people would someone would do something like that and i asked my teachers and my parents and um other people why do why does this group of people why are we being attacked why are we at war and the answer was always something to the effect of they hate us for our freedom and that just felt super black and white and really basic and i was 16 and definitely super immature and basic and all of those things, but they just kind of rubbed me as incomplete. So when I went, when I went to, to university, there was the opportunity to take classes on Middle Eastern studies, Middle Eastern affairs, um, all of those things. And the big takeaway that I would just say is that we have an underappreciation for the history there. There is a reason that those countries have antipathy towards us. Like it's, they're, 
a lot of it is justified. Obviously, violence is um, not a great solution in most cases, but in a lot of cases, you, you can make the argument that violence is one of the only ways that those subsets of people feel like they can get the attention of Western countries. They feel oppressed. And when people feel like, you know, think about yourself as an individual, when you feel oppressed, when you feel like you have your back against the wall, like, do you normally handle that calmly and rationally by having conversations? Or do you have an emotional response? Do you take extreme measures? I would say that most of us under facing stress and pressure. And when we feel like we have our back against the wall, we lash out and that's pretty normal, like human response. And so I would just encourage people that are trying to understand that region to start by understanding the history and understanding, you know, your country's relationship with those countries for much before your time. Um, I haven't, haven't, it's been a while since I've worked in those regions professionally, but that was kind of be my broad stroke takeaway is the education around it is poor. Well, I, I was in Japan when the towers fell um, and I was a little bit older. I think I was mid twenties then. Um, and immediately when we went to Iraq, I was like, but these people were in Afghanistan, weren't there? And we're going into Iraq to chase. I, I don't understand, you know? So that was, you know, I'm not by any means um, well-educated in politics. I'm not the, you know, the sharpest tool in the box either, but those just kind of smarted with me. I just recently interviewed one of, the, I think one of the most revered journalists of, you know, yesteryear, uh, Larry Doyle. He interviewed Nelson Mandela the day he got out. Wow. And that's the kind of Incredible. journalist he was. And I asked him about this. And he gave a kind of similar response than, than kind of you did earlier when we were talking. So I'd love to kind of get your perspective. Talk to me about the the kind of uh, the creation of news media and and the you know the, the the war reporting and politics side. And and in your opinion, you know, what has been the devolution that you've witnessed? Well, I think this is, again, kind of understanding the history and mine isn't perfect, but my understanding is that when cable television became a kind of widespread thing, the deal that was made with the networks and, you know, the kind of federal broadcasting um, organizers was that, you know, you guys can sell ads, you can you know put all this programming up, you can make money off of it. But the deal is for this one hour every night, you have to report the news and the news is meant to educate the electorate so that when it comes time to vote for president, Congress, local elections, all of it, that the electorate is well-informed. And that is kind of um, an important part of our democracy is educated voters making educated decisions. And over the years, especially, you know, since, since I've been alive, I'm 35, the the, the news does not do that. There is no news. I don't watch cable news because if you watch cable news, you have to like do a bunch of research to source it and figure out what if what you were watching was even accurate because there's all sorts of context being left out. And, the, you know, the bottom line is that the news isn't meant to educate anymore. The news is driven by, you know, story selection is driven by ratings because they're all competing with one another. That's the nature of capitalism. And I love capitalism. I love the idea that you know, the the best thing rises to the top. I think that's awesome. I'll probably just get absolutely eviscerated on the internet for that. But <laughs> I know there's plenty of people that capitalism is flawed. I understand. But that element of it has allowed our country to do incredible things. But 
without the context, without understanding what we're voting for now, uh, I'm not surprised that a lot of people are uneducated or making uneducated decisions. And to see this kind of like major stratification between, you know, the left and the right, and people are taking a very black and white stance in on in both parties. Neither of them are particularly impressive or um, intelligent. It's the kind of dismissive dismission of the shades of gray and clinging to the black and white. And that's never a recipe for success and or problem solving. It is just, I'm right. I want to hear myself talk. And that's what happens when the kind of structure of the news stops serving the purpose that it was designed to serve. Big problem. Don't know how to solve it. <laughs> well, it was interesting because I came from England and I've talked about this a few times. Even as a kid, we had this thing called John Craven's News Round and it was like BBC for children. And we would learn about famines and, you know, all these things that were going around. It wasn't to scare people. It was educational. It was this is going on, period. And then also there would be normally interwoven with some way that we could fundraise for these people. So there was community, there was altruism, there was reporting. And I look at the BBC. In England, we have a thing called the TV license. So you pay a fee every year. And that's why if you watch the BBC, there's no adverts. Mm -hmm. The money is there. And then and what happened is the BBC still seems to be probably the most trusted news channel on the planet. Mm -hmm. And Larry even said that himself. And what he was talking about is back in the day, kind of what you were talking about. People would tune in for that one hour and get the real news. And I think, I forget how he, how he described it. I think the people that owned the networks also owned other companies and that was what would fund the television show and then there was a switch and now the tv shows had to start making their own money and that's when we shifted and you know again when you're not super intelligent like myself you get a very basic look and you're like wait a second they're just trying to keep you glued to the television so you can watch the adverts it's not about news it's about advertising space money and the moment we shifted to that we shifted away from news. So when I see Fox and CNN, I see the same exact blueprint. And people, again, like, oh, I never watched Fox. I never watched CNN. You're watching it. You're doing it. Just, yeah, the, it's the, the same thing. has got a different color tie. That's it. It's exactly it. It's very true. It's You have to do the same. If you're watching it to learn, you have to You end each you know, television show with the same assignment, which is to then f- go fact check, understand the context. It's a whole, it's like a homework assignment watching cable news. If you want to, if your goal is to learn, because then you have to go back and you have to, you know, pull 16 different sources. You have to read the left. You got to read the stuff on the right. You have to understand, you know, what is fact and what is being just blatantly made up because that's a thing that we can do now. In fairness, that's the thing Americans have been doing since, you know, pre-revolution is just making shit up and yelling at each other in the press. This is not new. Like go back to the founding fathers. Like those guys all hated each other and they were all just had pseudonyms in the press and they're all just attacking each other and kind of making stuff up sometimes. This is American. This is an American tradition. So you're saying Abe Lincoln would have been tweeting. I don't know about Abe Lincoln, but like (laughs) Alexander Hamilton and Jefferson, like those guys hated each other and they were kind of like the first ones to just snipe at each other in the press under pseudonyms where they could just make up stuff and have an opinion and, it was it was more about the being right than it necessarily was about the what is right. Sounds strangely familiar. Yeah, I think those guys probably the founding fathers came at it from the end goal of like this. I am doing this because I believe my way is right. But that became kind of a fabric of the uh, the news media from the very beginning. 
I think a lot of people think that the way that the news is now is new, but it ain't. (laughs) One other thing that just seems to be an ongoing, you know, unending death toll is the the kind of West Bank conflict as well. With you being well, you know, somewhat well educated in the world of um, Palestine, what, if you could be queen for a day, what needs to change there so we can stop those poor people killing each other? Because, I mean, I, I have Palestinian friends, I have, you know, Israeli friends, and obviously they have very staunch views of what the other's doing. But again, from the outside looking in, it's like, fuck, you know, if we could get you both to stop murdering each other for a second and figure this out, you know, it's it's like when I grew up, Ireland, you know, Catholics and Protestants murdering each other. You're the same fucking religion. Well, how did they work it out? I don't know that history as well as I know the Middle Eastern history. It's, they it's seem to have a better handle of it than the Palestinians and the Israelis. Honestly, and again, this is a complete layman's perspective. I was just telling someone the other day, when in the 90s, Mickey Rourke did a f- film. And it was about some IRA you know, terrorist. And I think he donated the proceeds of his film to the IRA. Now, I'm an English boy watching men, women, and children getting blown up in shopping centers in England by the IRA. And, you know, the, the conflict has gone on on the Irish um, you know, land as well. And so, in my opinion, when 9-11 happened, I think a lot of the funding went away to them in the first place, maybe some of the weapons that would find their way that way. So, of course, diplomacy, you'd hope, was part of it. But I think like anything, you take the, you know, they take the power and greed away from these organizations that are hailing some great, um, you know, uh, reason for this violence. I think it, it kind of cuts the legs off a little bit. But I mean, it was just, it was heartbreaking. I mean, these people were neighbors killing each other. Same in, you know, so many parts of the world, North and South Korea. I mean, all these areas. So I understand a very, very basic element that, you know, Israel was created, you know, post-World War II, but I'm very, very naive on the whole thing. You know, what, if you want to give some backstory of, of, of the, the conflict and is there anything we can do to, to, to stop this unending death toll? Well, I definitely don't want to, like, I'm not an expert on this. I worked in that region of the world for a limited part of my life and I learned a ton, but I was a kid at the time. Uh, If I was queen for a day, it would be more like if I was a time traveler for a day. I think the best thing we do is we go back in time and we kind of um, pick a period at which all the kind of the structural things that created the conflict that we have now, which is essentially about land. And there was a, I forget the exact dates, but after the seven day war, which that Israel won before that, there was a period where a peace plan was proposed where, you know, the West Bank would get, or sorry, Palestine would get what is the West Bank. And then there was kind of like a small little offshoot that it was connected to Gaza. And that was going to be, that was proposed for Palestine. And then Israel would have a much smaller than it is now, but Israel would be Israel. And we would, both countries would be able to live in peace in, you know, have sections of the Holy Land. And the Palestinians were said, no, they, you know, Israel was a state that was created in their minds completely arbitrarily by, you know, these Western governments post, you know, in this, during this war. And in their mind, that was super fucked up. That's not cool. This is, that's my house. But the problem was they said no. And then there was a war and they lost. And when you lose a war, there's, you lose those bargaining chips. And you, that was when Israel gained a much more significant piece of territory than the peace plan proposed. And so a lot of people would argue that 
Palestine had their best position was before that war and that it was a mistake to, you know, say absolutely not. And, you know, you can't rewrite history, obviously, but if I was a time traveler, might go back and have some more conversations around, uh, is this, you know, this a piece that we could live with? Because the bottom line is there's so many different parts of the conflict that remain that prevent us from reaching like what is referred to as a two state solution. You know, there's the right of return Palestinians, you know, second, third generation now, maybe, maybe more, they want to go home. They want to live where their parents and great grandparents, the home, the land that they lost. And that's incredibly difficult now because the Israeli government has, you know, had a policy of settlements and they are putting up the idea um, is that, you know, if we settle these places and these people live here for long enough, it's incredibly hard to get rid of them. And that has proved incredibly true. And that's why settlements are so unpopular and so controversial because, you know, it's it's excellent for the people that get to live there, but it's coming at the expense of the people that used to live there. And so the right of return is a really challenging um, part of the negotiations because bottom line is if we're being practical and realistic, it's incredibly hard to grant the right of return to Palestinians. But if you say that to those negotiating parties, you know, it's almost a, a walk away from the table item, as is the, you know, Jerusalem. You know, how, who gets Jerusalem? It's the, it's the holy capital of the world, and it's incredibly important to three religions. The Palestinians feel like they have lived there for all of time, and the, the Jews have lived there now since, you know, they first started immigrating in the 20s, maybe before that. And everybody feels as though it's there. So what do we do about that? Nobody has been able to come up with a good answer. And those are just two of the kind of negotiation pieces. There are more. And it, I don't, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> I went into politics to help people. And it was incredibly difficult. And I ultimately, one of the reasons I switched to coaching CrossFit and writing and doing what I do now is that I have found that I'm able to help more people through this than I was able to from a, behind a desk in Washington, just because that conflict is so incredibly intractable for those reasons. And more that, you know, it's been 10 years since I worked in that region and a lot, the conflict is kind of always evolving and reshaping and I'm no longer an expert by any means. But yeah, I would, I would go back in time and maybe have some nuanced discussions about is this something we can live with? What what will we do if we lose? Be fascinating to be a fly on the wall during you know the forties. Yeah, well, I appreciate your perspective. I mean, I can't imagine you know being a Londoner and someone coming in and saying you're not living here anymore. I don't think people quite understand that. But again, you know, you look at the sides. atrocity. Yeah. yeah, I mean, what happened to the Jewish people, especially in you know World War Two, was horrendous. It's, so it's it's the worst thing that's ever happened to any group of people. Like in human history it's it's appalling it's yeah yeah and then you have the russians as well who you know i think that they had the highest death toll they were allies and now look at where we are you know i mean it's just i've talked about this a lot again when you were you know (laughs) not the not the sharpest tool in the box i use that you keep saying that you're incredibly intelligent well what i mean by that (laughs) is i'm not I'm not someone who reads widely, you know what I mean? Genuinely. So I have a, a very basic view, but then you look at the world history and you're like, it's the same thing over and over again. You get a few tyrants and they rule an entire country. I mean, look at, you know, the Russians that are being sent to the Ukraine now. Do you think they really care about 
being in the Ukraine? I'm sure they don't. And this is what's so maddening is if we could just use this amazing community that is the internet now to disseminate positive information that pulls people together rather than divides them, the next Mao Zedong or whoever to rise up, people be like, nah, nope, not happening. Remember World War Two? No, get that fucker yeah. out of yeah. here. Yeah, I mean, you know what I mean. Europe is pretty sensitive to that still, but it's a it's a time thing. At, after a certain amount of time, we the atrocities of the past start to feel less relevant to now, and we start to think that you know maybe that can't happen to us ever again. We already did that. I was like, nope, nope. History repeats itself. That's a saying for a reason. It's all about you know. One of the things that was really fascinating to me when I was in the West Bank a lot was how similar the Palestinians and the Israelis are. Like they look alike, you know, they have this language that is different, but sounds the same, like, you know, culturally very, very similar. And the place where everybody seemed most moderate was Jerusalem because there's Christians and there's Jews and there's Palestinians and they're all living kind of in, you know, there's kind of the Jewish quarter, the Christian quarter, the um, Palestinian Muslim population. They all have their own neighborhoods and whatever, but there's a lot of overlap people. They interact a lot. And that was the part of the city or the country that was the least violent, seemed like the most moderate. Whereas, you know, you travel into you know, Ramallah or Nablus or some, you know, some of these places that are literally separated by a huge wall that the Palestinians, sorry, that the Israelis have built. You, those two cultures cannot interact. People fear what they don't understand. And I think it's so much easier to hate and to like have this intractable conflict that keeps lasting when there's no diplomacy or interaction of any kind. And most Palestinians are slaves in their own, you know, kind of non-country. There's a wall that runs down the entire thing. Like people that live in Ramallah, which is about 15 minute drive from Jerusalem, cannot go to Jerusalem ever. Like they will spend their entire lives in Ramallah because they are not allowed to leave or they have to get very special permit from the Israeli government to leave and go to Jerusalem. And, you know, maybe that's changed over the years, but you know, when we were there, it was like the blue passport, the American passport was like this, it was like the golden ticket. You could get, you could go back and forth and it was, I don't know. It just seemed very telling if we could just, when people understand each other and can interact and there's, they can address what they're afraid of conflict has a funny way of dissolving people are much more open to discussion they're much more empathetic there's more compassion whereas when you don't know them and they're just an enemy and you, you don't know what they want or what they're like or anything it's much easier to take a firmer more extreme stand and so that's kind of the essence of diplomacy i guess is bringing people together to find common ground and understanding that we are, have a lot more in common than we you know don't Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I said this recently. It, yeah, the mark of a good leader is someone who brings the community together. And I've argued on both both sides. I feel like you know the Trump administration drove wedges through people, whether it was on immigration or whatever it was, and they and they pit people against each other. And then the most recent administration with the vaccines, it was you know tyrannical as well. And this to me is a kind of the little red flag warning sign of, you know, this is what these other countries have gone through. Like this simple, the most basal question, is your leader unifying you or dividing you? And COVID's no better example of that. I mean, friendships and families were torn apart because of the politi 
politicization of, yeah, that word, yep. <laughs> of of what should have been a simple medical conversation do you want to do you know, his his here's what it will do here's what it won't do here's how your underlying health is most important do, would you like to do it would you not like to do it yeah. that simple fortunately and you know modern democracies the united states is it's cool. Like you can only be a dictator for eight years and then you get voted like someone else is coming in. So the, you know, the system is designed to be resilient and, you know, we've had, you know, Trump was not the first president we had that it was a divider instead of a uniter. And, you know, plenty of, plenty of people love him, plenty of people don't, but the system is designed to withstand that. And, you know, feels like we got closer than we ever did when, when, in terms of like a peaceful transition of power when Trump left office and Biden took office, but the system held up. It did what it was supposed to. Democracy wins. That, that was encouraging. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I would love to get away from, from that conversation. But again, this, this is, these are important things for us to hear, and especially with the, you know, the Palestinian lens, just because we don't hear this from a normal conversation. And my whole thing with the, you know, who would be, that the the tip of the spear when it comes to our nation is I hope we have um, a system of choosing people that really puts the best ones in front of us and that we find someone who pulls of us together. Not everyone, none of us, are, you know, we're not all going to agree, but I would argue that the middle 80% would probably be happy with either or if we had two great leaders. One might lean one way, one might lean the other, but there's a difference between leaning one way and cleaving mm-hmm. in half. Yeah, I'm with you. Like shades of gray is kind of, the way black and white is nothing's ever black and white. It's always shades of gray and refusing to take the time to understand a position that is different from yours is just a recipe to be mad all the time (laughs) and in running away from what you don't understand or what you think is stupid instead of taking the time to at least understand why people feel like that is part of the issue it's so easy to do that now like with social media and the news like you can you can listen to whatever news um is gonna um solidify your own opinion confirmation bias yeah totally like you can you can just surround yourself with news that only affirms your worldview and just dismisses every other worldview doesn't make you right (laughs) makes you uninformed don't do that (laughs) Take the time. You don't have to agree, but at least take the time to understand other people. Most people are smart. Most people have a reason for the way that they feel. And it's amazing how just taking the time to respectfully try and understand how much more. Nobody nobody has ever changed anybody else's opinion by attacking that person's opinion. If you want to change somebody's opinion, befriend them. Bring them into the fold. That's the best way to change somebody's mind from a position of friendship you're not going to win an argument ever by attacking someone's position, telling them that their line of reasoning is stupid or racist or soft or whatever it is. Just get to know everything's more complicated than you think. Try and understand. <laughs> well, that circles well around to, you know, what you said um, early on as far as kind of connecting with some of the athletes in the CrossFit space. So I'll use that segue to get us back to, yeah, sure, yeah, <laughs> to writing. Talking a lot about life and no, but that's what I love about the world. It. I, I mean, I appreciate it because people have these kind of nuanced resumes and these these stories. And, you know, there's lots and lots and lots of podcasts about 
crossfit out there and you know that's an important part of this chat but how many people have really been immersed in you know middle eastern culture that can educate us from a very different perspective so i appreciate you going there with me it does feel like a different life but grateful for that background um made me a lot more open-minded as a coach and as a writer well speaking of writing (laughs) so let's get to that so i know you ended up not only writing you know books but also even being behind some of the social media stuff with dave castro so kind of walk me through your timeline with that whole arena yeah i was a brand new hire at crossfit new england i accepted a job from ben bergeron to coach part-time at cfne in 20 late 2016 like fall of 2016 so moved up about two months in i'm coaching i'm you know learning how to coach from the best in the world, loving it. And, you know, Ben mentions one day in passing that he's writing a book and us, congratulations, that's awesome. And he's like, I was doing some of CFNE's social media at the time and some of that included some writing. And he's like, well, you can, you write. I I feel weird about the manuscript that I got back. Would you mind taking a look at it? Very flattered and still very starstruck by Ben at this point. Agree. He sends me the manuscript. I spend a weekend with it and I'm just, you know, reading it. And the more I read, the more I'm like, oh my God, this is so bad. <laughs> it was Ben's, all of his mindset stuff, but it was written with like a textbook. There was no story, no soul. It's just, I'm like fascinated by everything this guy says. And I was bored by this manuscript. And so on, I think it was a Monday or Tuesday of the next week. He's like, what did you think? Did you have time to dig into the manuscript? And I was like, I did. I tried very tactfully to tell him what I just said to you. And he was like, oh, I totally agree, which was a big relief. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, um, I don't really know what it needs, but would you mind, do you think you could take a crack at maybe going through it and making it sound more like me? And I was like, I, I'll try. So I spent another week with it. A week goes by. He's like, how's it going? And I told him, I just, I don't think any of this is, is workable. You got to just completely burn this house down and rebuild it. And he's like, okay, what do you have in mind? And I was like, well, I, I think that there's no story here. I think that if you're going to take these kind of big, almost academic mindset, sub- mindset subjects and make them engaging, you need to tell them through um, like a real story of real people. And what do you think about doing that through the lens of the 2016 games where Catherine and Matt Frazier won and Ben was coaching Matt Frazier at the time. And he's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was like, okay, uh, it'd probably just be easier for me to write it down and just show you. So I took a stab at the like introduction to the book and then I believe one additional chapter. And I showed it to him. I'm, I'll never forget. I, t- I emailed it to him and then I texted him to let him know that I had sent it. And he's like, okay, I'll read right now. So I'm just sitting there staring at my phone. You know, I'm still, like I said, very starstruck by Ben and very luck felt very lucky and grateful to be working for him. So he starts typing and I see the bubbles and he just goes, I'm only two pages in, but I love it. I was like, Oh, great. So when I saw him the next day, he goes, well, when do you think you can write chapter two? And I was like, Oh no, no, like, no, you don't want me to write your book. Like I was just giving you the concept for how I think whoever you're working with can, you know, just take everything that you've already done and kind of add this storytelling piece to it and just run with it. It'll be great. He's like, no, I think, I don't think anybody knows CrossFit. Like the people I'm working with don't know CrossFit. They just know writing, you know, both. Like, I think we could 
make something cool together. And I tried so hard to talk him out of it. I was like, dude, I don't know the first thing. I've never written a book before. You don't want me to do it. I'm not a professional. And he was like, don't worry about that. Like you wrote, I love what you did for chapter one. Let's just write chapter two the same way. Don't think about it in terms of, you know, a whole book. Just think about it as what you just did. Let's just do that for chapter two. And then when we're done with that, like we'll write chapter three and we'll just take it one chapter at a time. You can do that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can do that. So that's how we wrote Chasing Excellence. It took us six weeks. It was incredibly fast and so fun. Like Ben and I got to know each other so well by sitting in this small room together, just talking about his mindset principles. And um, if this, then what do you do? And if this, what do you do? And kind of pulling some of the examples that were in the book um, from Katrin and Matt and you know some of his other athletes. So that was very, very cool experience. Um, kind of my first formative you know, experience as a writer where we finished and I was like, wow, I like ghost wrote a book. So when it came, uh, you know, maybe like a year after that, Katrin was working on her book with Rory McKernan and they were having a hard time communicating because she was kind of, I think it was postseason um, from 2016. So she was still in Iceland a lot. And even when she wasn't in Iceland, she was here on the East Coast and Rory was out in California. So I think they were just having trouble connecting on some like tough questions in terms of the narrative of the book. And Kat asked me to help her kind of work with Rory to get her voice across. So I got involved with that book project. I ended up, I think I wrote like the first chapter and maybe like some, some stuff at the end and helped Rory edit a lot in the beginning, but it's Rory's book hundred percent. I just kind of helped, but working with Kat on that kind of solidified like Christine is a writer, like I'm a CrossFit coach, but I'm also, it seems like also this, having this other side career of writing. And a couple of years went by, continued to kind of like run social media for CompTrain. That was kind of my primary job. I was not an author at that point. I wouldn't identify as an author. I did social media. I created content for Ben's um, programming company. And towards the end of 2019, just started to feel like, that had kind of run its course. And Ben and I decided that I would step away from Comtrain and that we were going to write a second book together. And I was just going to focus on that book. And then COVID happened. So I wrote all of that book in Florida down here. It was Unlocking Potential is our leadership book. And a very different subject, but kind of same process with Ben sitting in a room um, for a long time, for eight months there. It was Zoom or FaceTime, having phone calls, very challenging very committed to the idea that in person is much better, which is why um, this is so awesome that we get to do this in your house. And then it was while I was working on that book, it was halfway through 2020, all of the COVID stuff started affecting the CrossFit games in a very big way, right? Like um, Greg had a very controversial tweet that led to a controversial podcast that led to him, like the athletes essentially boycotting the CrossFit games where, you know, we don't even know when we're, if we're going to be able to do the games, but, you know, a lot of these high level, some of the best names in the sport are like, I'm not participating in this if he's still here. So obviously everybody knows the history. Greg sold the company, Eric Rosa steps in. So there's this big kind of that big transition happening. And at the same time, like we're having to punt on the CrossFit games, which are normally at the very end of July, beginning of August, that, you know, 
switched to September and then they punted to October and there was stage one and then stage two was going to be this very exclusive affair out in California. So we've never had any CrossFit games like this. And I'm just sitting there as an observer, like someone has to tell, like, I bet the behind the scenes story within CrossFit is absolutely insane. Who wouldn't want to read a, like about that and be a fly on the wall for that? So I reached out to Dave and I've told this story on a couple of podcasts. So apologize if people listening have listened to that, but I wrote Dave Castro a letter and printed it out and mailed it. And I had a copy of the playbook for the play Hamilton that had essentially the book told this behind the scenes story of how this incredible thing was created. This thing that everybody loves so much, how it all came together in terms of choreography and the music and the actors and the costume design where, you know, we had you know these people of color playing founding fathers and the way that they portrayed like, you know, very natural on the top and then the more traditional founding father from the neck down. Super interesting. And I sent it to Dave and I was like, this is what you guys should be doing for the CrossFit Games this year. You should be telling the story this way. You guys have just gone through this crazy, tumultuous transition of power and during which you've committed to be more communicative with the affiliate community. Why not put your money where your mouth is and start with this. Tell the story of the 2020 CrossFit Games. And I didn't hear anything for two weeks, three weeks, might've been a month. Long time goes by. And then I get a text from an unknown number. Hey, it's Dave Castro. Essentially, I don't remember the exact words, but it was essentially to the effect of, can you really do all that bullshit you just said? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, yeah. And he's like, okay, do you want to come out for the games and run my social media. And I was like, that's not at all what I had um, proposed, but yeah, absolutely. So he's like, all right, cool. Um, Talk to so-and-so. They'll get you on a flight. They'll get you on staff. Like we'll, we'll get you out here. And that's what we did. So went out there, very surreal. It was, you know, it's a ranch. I'd never been there. It's this hollowed CrossFit ground. And day one, go out in a car with some of his other assistants and he is playing basketball. He puts down the basketball immediately, comes over, introduces himself, which I was very impressed with. And he didn't really have like a vision for what he wanted to do. So I think part of Dave's always testing you. He's always just like constantly pushing buttons to kind of like see who you are. And he was essentially just like, what's your plan? And I had a, idea of doing a photo journal because I had done a, something similar for Ben and Comtrain in years past. So I, I took a couple of his posts about the games like that day or previous days where I just wasn't there yet. And I kind of like rewrote them into the photo journal style that I was thinking and showed him. I was like, this is kind of what I'm thinking. He's like, cool, go with that. So got to do that during the 2020 games is essentially follow Dave around I was with him almost the entire time. There's only 10 athletes. So the competition is like very conducive to this behind the scenes thing because, you know, the, the coolest part about the games is the community gets to come and enjoy it. And the community didn't get to come and enjoy it that year. It was just, you know, support staff and the athletes. It was so weird. So I kind of adopted this role thinking that my job was to bring the CrossFit games to the people that weren't able to be there that year. And it was super popular. And I look back on the stuff that I wrote then and I was like, oh my God, it's so bad. Like, why are people so into this? This was so bad. But I think what people responded to was the behind the scenes, the authenticity of it. Um, just 
hearing about and in very descriptive detail of things that they would never get conversations that athletes are having with each other or with Dave or whoever, these really small human moments that define them, not just as athletes, but as people, everybody gets to see what they do on the floor. They're superhuman. So my focus was figuring out and focusing on the things that, you know, people couldn't see on the live broadcast, not what makes these athletes superhuman, but what makes them human and, you know, I don't think I knew that it was going to be as popular as it was. But now that I think about it, it makes sense. Like we all have these things in common. We all have these, we all share the same set of emotions. So seeing, I think it was really cool for people to like, kind of see the vulnerability of some of these athletes in a way that you don't normally see when you watch CrossFit Games documentary, where it's all like pounding at the chest and these really epic moments, which are so fun to watch. But the photo journal brought a behind the scenes element that didn't exist up to that point. And so Dave was super um, supportive of it. That was an awesome way for us to get to know each other. It was a really small, it was at his house. So it really accelerated our relationship. And he invited me back to do the same thing at the games in 21, which was even more incredible because we're back in Madison. Um, the, you know, we have all these athletes, we have the adaptive, we have the masters, we have the teens and the teams and, you know, the individual fields are full again. So just from a storytelling perspective, so much more to write about there and kind of, but had the same focus, like, let's bring, let's not focus on anything that happens on the field. Or if we do only to the extent of what it means for this person as a human being, not as an athlete. And that's kind of, been it's kind of turned into my whole brand the way that i photo journal and the kind of focus i have is now the same um, assignment that i give myself when i'm writing a book for an athlete or like a more long form piece for an article or whatever it ends up being like the authenticity and the um i guess authenticity is probably the best word for it for what makes these athletes special and but in a human way that's very relatable. And that's kind of, that's all, that's the goal when I do anything now. And that was really solidified during the games with Dave. Amazing. Yeah, actually, I was blown away. He said yes to come on the podcast. I think it was about, about not, a year ago now. Not surprised at all. Dave would love what you do with Behind the Shield. Like, it's awesome. Well, it was, he was, you know, it was such a great conversation. He even touched on his SEAL career a little bit, which I know he likes to steer away from normally, but yeah, I mean, just seems like a, a really good person and, you know, just... I was very impressed by Dave. Um, just the way that he came up to me and introduced himself. Uh, was, I think it was the second day he turned to me and we were in the Gator going really fast and he was just, you know, very casually, very stoically. It was, you know, thanks for doing a really great job with my Instagram. And God, like, talk about leadership. Just a little bit of like, hey, I see you. Thanks. What a run through a wall for him after that. And just stuff you know, little stuff that year. He thanked, you know, Aromas is where, um, forget blanking on the author, uh, blanking on the author right now, but there is a famous classics author that wrote a lot of his stuff in the, based in the Aromas area. And so Dave, who is a huge reader, bought all of the judges and um, all of the, like some of the support staff copies of these different books it's mice and men who wrote mice and john men? steinbeck yes steinbeck okay sorry thank you as an author that's very embarrassing <laughs> <laughs> so you got these different copies of different steinbeck books for everybody and he i actually wrote something like for the photo journal about it and he was just like ah like nah it's it's too much like don't put that in and dave is 
I don't think anybody would call Dave humble, but he's such a good dude and he's very thoughtful. And the, the people that work for him, the people on his team are incredibly important to him. And he does a really great job of demonstrating that, which I think is why people are so loyal to him. I worked for him for one week and felt that same level of loyalty. Like he works so hard. He holds himself to an incredibly high standard, which is why he's able to hold the people under him to the same standard and why he gets what he asks for from the people that work for him. Like everyone is so loyal. Like his team was very loyal to him. And you could tell that a lot of it was because he walked the walk. Didn't ask anybody to do anything that he hadn't either done himself before or, you know, would do himself. Was very impressed by Dave. He's also just a silly, awesome, very funny, um, more generous of spirit than I think anybody would expect. Well, it's funny you're talking about the classics because I remember that was the answer. I'll ask you in, in a few minutes, but you know, one of the closing questions of the books you recommend, you recommended Ryan Holiday's book. Um, but his were the classics. He's like, they're called the classics for a reason. I remember him saying that. So, yeah. I read um, on Dave's recommendation this year, I read The Count of Monte Cristo and Gone with the Wind. And that I haven't read many classics and Dave kind of got me on a classics kick and they do, they don't disappoint. They're incredible. Like going to read more in 2023 for sure. Brilliant. All right. Well, one more area before we get to the closing questions, you touched on the adaptive athletes. Mm -hmm. It's another group that, you know, I'm so inspired and, you know, blown away by, and obviously there's, there's, you know, some of those community are coming out of the military and some of the other professions and their injuries. But, um, talk to me about, um, Logan Aldridge. I shared a video of him doing an incredible clean and jerk in this uh, this one competition. I think there was another. I'm blanking on her name. There was another one I shared, and it was a female CrossFit athlete. One with, leg. Yes. Yes. I don't know her name off the top of my head either, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah, She's and I follow incredible. her. But yeah. She's amazing. But you were talking about that um video shot with Logan was a, a very um, personal competition <laughs> to you. Yeah, my brother who still lives here in Ocala is a year and a half younger than me. His full-time job is running a medical profession, uh, sorry, medical office here in Ocala and doesn't quite do it for him in terms of scale and challenge. And, you know, he loves CrossFit the same way I do. And so he, he bought a CrossFit event and it was called the Bacon Beatdown. And we joke around in here in Florida that it's the Redneck Wadapalooza. It is a huge event. There's almost, you know, it's 15 to 100 to 2,000 athletes that come and it's all divisions except, except for elites. There are no elites the way that there are at Wadapalooza. So something like Wadapalooza, um, the Mid-Atlantic CrossFit Challenge is kind of comparable in terms of size and scale. They bankroll their events by attracting the elites, which attract big sponsors, which attract ticket sales. So that's kind of the model is elites. This competition is kind of the opposite in the sense that there is no, there is an elite division, but they don't cater towards, they're not trying to get Brooke Wells to come compete. They're not trying to get BKG to come over from Iceland to do it. It's not rogue. So they have every division under the sun that you can imagine. They have team, they have individual, there's all sorts of stuff. And my brother was a um, couple, this was like a couple years ago before, before the CrossFit Games started their adapted division the bacon beatdown which is now renamed to the atlantic coast classic had an adaptive division and the first year they got um logan to come compete and you know there was a bunch of different adaptive divisions but logan's obviously in the upper extremity division and that i was on the floor of that event in daytona beach when he 
was going up for his lift and it was so you know i'd been there for the entire event and i think the quote elite division had gone before adaptive they got to the crowd got to see some big lifts the engagement and decibel level from the crowd when logan hit his one-armed clean and jerk and i don't remember exactly what it was it was like 225 or maybe more it was something nuts um the audience reaction the spectator reaction when he hit that versus when any other athlete the entire weekend did anything cool was so like out of this world more it was so awesome to see how like it, it felt like real crossfit like that doesn't happen at events usually, but it was really special. I remember talking to Logan after that. It was either there in Daytona or it was at the games because Logan also, he did like a 405 deadlift with one arm at the games. Like the man is just unbelievable. And I remember asking him, I mean, he's incredibly well-spoken. And if you haven't had him on this podcast, you definitely should. He's amazing. And one of the things that he said was, you know, it's incredible that to have this platform now for adaptive athletes to compete in the sport of CrossFit. Like, it's amazing. I love competing, you know, hitting a one-arm clean and jerk and having it circulate on ESPN's, you know, Instagram and all that is awesome. But he talked about the adaptive division, the way that, you know, like the Protestant Reformation talks about the printing press, which is that it's a way to disseminate a new idea. And his point was that by having you know, this broadcast of these adaptive athletes doing these amazing things, it expands the reach of CrossFit for this community in a way that has never existed before. And that's how CrossFit itself grew is by having the games and people are like, oh, like, what's that? Because it was on ESPN and you can almost track the participation in CrossFit by the, you know, advent of the broadcast. And the same thing is, in his mind, is potentially going to happen through the adaptive division and broadcast and giving them the same broadcast time as the elites. Really, really cool perspective is that, you know, by yes, we have a disability. Yes, it sucks, but we can become more functional and live a higher quality life by doing, by training this way, by doing these things. No, our lives are never going to be the same as they were before, you know, our injury or our accident or whatever happened um, that led to a disability. But that's not to say nothing can be done and that life can't get better and we can't be more functional and more able-bodied. And I know that like the term able-bodied is probably contentious among the adaptive community, but that's the exact phrase that he used. So that's kind of what I've stuck with. And I think it's a really cool perspective. It's not the it's not the victim mindset that is so poisonous, which is, you know, woe is me. I don't deserve this. I can't believe this happened to me. Because if you get stuck in that and that's just where you live and you can't get past that, yes, of course, this isn't fair. Of course, it sucks. Life isn't fair. Things are going to happen. There, The world owes you nothing. It is all just random. And somebody, uh, whatever you're going through, somebody else has gone through before you. And it's all about making the best of it and learning about yourself along the way. And there's, there's no better example than somebody like Logan. Super cool dude. Well, I mean, two things. Firstly, that we have a, or had an athlete in our gym, Charlotte Merle Smith, who was actually in the wheel ward. She's, um, you know, uh, paraplegic. Um, I think she, I mean, she, she did incredibly well. I forget where she ended up, but it was, you know, somewhere close to the top. Um, but she's also an elite equestrian rider. Oh, cool. So, you know, she still does that now. Yeah. She, I think she, she kind of did CrossFit for a bit and then realized, okay, probably like a lot of people do, 
I don't want to just do CrossFit for CrossFit. I want to do it for something else. So I think that's when she kind of made that shift. But an observation I've made as well, we talked about clickbait and, you know, scare tactics and all these things that people do. And yes, you know, a, a nasty fight or a Karen will probably go viral on social media. But I will argue that acts of kindness, some, some of these incredible adaptive athletes have the same kind of impact. And I think that people are actually wanting them and would much rather see, you know, an adaptive athlete complete a lift than an old lady getting mugged at a bus stop. But sadly, both of those are out there. So, the, you know, it, it inspires me that, you know, the, the good stories are as if not more powerful than the shitty stories. So true. Yeah. Being able to highlight those, some of those as a writer is very cool. And not just highlighting me like, no, this is good news, but digging into what the attitude and the mindset that has allowed this person to do such remarkable things, despite, you know, what has happened to them. That's the thing that interests me the most, not just, I love the, you know, everybody loves writing about, it's so easy to write about somebody like Logan hitting a 225 clean and jerk with one arm. That's ridiculous. But what I want to write about is how he got to a place where he believed that he could do something like that. Because that's the magic, like people like him that are going through something really hard and life changing and where you don't even know the body that you're living in anymore. How do you get from there to where Logan is? That's what I want to write about those things. So like digging in, getting to know those people, like so much of writing, the, the kind of writing I do is relationships and like getting to know those people and talking to them, like really talking to them and understanding their stories is the best job in the world. Well, that's a great segue to the last thing I want to talk about before we go to the closing questions. Sure, yeah. What yeah. is the way? What is the way? What is the way is a children's book that I got to be part of with Katrin, David's daughter, and Annie Thor's daughter. They wanted to write a children's story, kind of um, breaking down and getting into some of the like values and big lessons learned that they've kind of takeaways that they've had as after spending a decade or more in the sport of CrossFit. And so they asked me to help them kind of develop the story and develop the characters. And it was one of the most, it's one of the coolest things I've ever done because when you talk about, you know, educating, entertaining, inspiring, it starts with kids. Like if you want to change the world, you know, start with kids and um, developing those values and that self-awareness that I've been talking about for like two hours. The, so much of that starts with, how we talk to and raise our children. And it was so special and very flattering for Kat and Annie to come to me and ask me if I would help them tell this story. And so we, we put together this character who's based, we named her Freya. She's um, named after Annie's daughter, the same name. And the book is about this girl who wants to get her thing and everybody has their thing. And Freya's thing is she wants to win the gold. And, so she sets out on the road to like go get her thing. And on the road, she encounters a series of obstacles that are um, from where she's standing almost insurmountable and they look really hard. And the people that are traveling on the road around her kind of give up one by one. They say that it's impossible. Well, there's an obstacle we have to turn around. It can't be done. And Freya is like, no, I'm going to give it a try. And she's a little bit nervous about it sometimes, but she, she goes through the obstacle. And at the end, after, you know, as she goes, every obstacle, she starts to enjoy the obstacles and they start, she enjoys figuring them out. And she's very proud after every one. Like she likes the feeling of being like, wow, I figured that out. Like I know more for the next one. 
And it gets to the point where she's no longer thinking about her thing. She's thinking about, she's just excited about the next, she's enjoying the process, essentially. She's enjoying the road more than she's thinking about, you know, her original goal. And so to the point where when she gets to the finish line and she wins and she gets her thing, it's almost a little bit anticlimactic, um, which is very, you know, it's an allegorical to, you know, what it's like to stand on the podium when you win the gold. It's awesome for like an hour, a day, a week. And then after that, both Kat and Nanny expressed to me that it feels weirdly empty after that. Like what now? You just feel like in our world of, you know, accomplishment, accomplishment, accomplishment that, you know, you did that, like what's next? And so the kind of like takeaway for kids is that, you know, and what Freya realizes at the end of the book is it was the the journey is the destination. Like that's the real prize is being able to just do life, have struggles, get your ass kicked, get back up. Like it's being in the arena. Like one of my favorite quotes is like the man in the arena by Teddy Roosevelt. And that's kind of like the gist of the book. And it's such a cool thing for kids because there's so like who hasn't been in the situation, whether they were a kid or an adult where you just feel like, it's embarrassing. Like what happens if I try and I come up short? What happens if I do this and I fail? Like everyone will see. It's going to be, you know, we're, we don't want to be too vulnerable. We don't want to ask questions we don't already know the answer to because we don't want to be ridiculed. We don't want to, everybody wants to win, but we don't want to lose. And the big message for kids is like failure, um, sorry, not trying, fear, ruins more lives than failure. And so that was like a really cool thing to work on and try and distill. It's a it's a heavy message, right? How to distill that down to an audience that is between, you know, ages five and 10 in a way that, you know, maybe they'll think about the next time they go through something difficult. And one of the things in the book that, and this is to Annie and Katrin's credit, they absolutely went over the top with the illustrations. They're so incredibly good. They they picked an um, illustrator and they worked with him so closely and really got these powerful images. And one of the things that Freya does when she's frustrated and she is trying to figure something out, she clenches her fists and she puts them by her side and she just looks up and she goes, this is the way. And that's what we want kids to understand is when they get frustrated, the only way out is through. Don't run away, go through it, be uncomfortable, learn, enjoy that. That's like everything that's good about life is in that struggle and coming out the other side. Sounds amazing. It really does. It rhymes, which is the part that I'm most proud of. (laughs) (laughs) It was hard to do that, but it was an incredibly rewarding project and really fun. Well, it also kind of reminds me of of a conversation I have with, with a few people on here. I can't stand that whole... Oh, you know, kids these days, they all get a participation trophy conversation. It's usually from someone who has no fucking idea what hard work looks like in the first place. But I find it would be very um, uh, uninspiring to kids if the message is, look, if you're not standing on number one on the podium, then why even bother? Mm -hmm. You're a piece of shit. Mm -hmm. Versus, as we talked about earlier on, inspiring them to move, to play to win, to lose, to to get scuffed knees and, you know, all these things that we do and to enjoy that process versus, you know, you know, what do they call second is first loser or what? I mean, this is thinking about the outcome in general, whether that's first or whether that's last. If you're only thinking about an activity in terms of the value is the outcome, 
not surprised that a lot of kids have traumatic relationships with, you know, the sport that they choose to play. Like, just read Andre Agassi's book. Like, man hated tennis, but he didn't feel like he knew how to do anything else. So he just plays tennis for his whole life, even though he hates tennis. And it's he has this pretty traumatic career because of it. And it took quitting and coming to terms with himself and his his upbringing and all of that to kind of get to a place where he understood and actually started to enjoy tennis, but couldn't agree more. It's not about the outcome. It's what is it that you ever play Super Mario like when you were a kid and you had to like drive, like you had to save the Princess Peach. And when you anyway, when you beat the game, the message at the end, it's like kind of profound. Like Mario comes back up and it's like a black screen. And he just says, remember, the princess is not in the next castle. Like she's on the road to the next castle. You're like, oh, wow, that's actually an incredibly profound life lesson that I learned from like Nintendo. <laughs> but it's so true. Like that's the fun. Like It's all worthless without that. Absolutely. Actually, I have Agassiz's biography on my shelf and I just haven't read it yet. You got to so. read it. It's, I mean, from the first couple pages, it's so engaging. It's um, a sports story, obviously very tennis specific, um, but one of those sports stories that kind of transcends the sport. Like you don't need to love tennis to, to really like, it's he's so incredibly vulnerable and authentic. Very cool story. Brilliant. All right. Well, I'm going to add that to the list of what I'm about <laughs> to ask you. You mentioned ego is the enemy. Now we've got Agassi, the uh, biography as well. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't hide my own books, which I don't normally like doing. Let's but do it. Chasing Excellence by Ben Bergeron. My name is not on it, but I helped write it. Um, Unlocking Potential by me and Ben. What is the Way by Catherine David's daughter and Annie Thor's daughter. And then much better books not written by me are, I would say, Atlas of the Heart by Brene Brown. So much of the authenticity and self-awareness. The premise of the book is it's every human emotion. Um, like there's 73. I think there might be more, but these are the most like the big core 70 something human emotions. And the premise of the book is that they, she did as a researcher, as a sociologist, did a study where they asked um, participants how many um, human emotions they could describe. And on average, and this is like the sample size of upwards of 5,000 people or something. Um, someone needs to fact check me on that. But the point is that on average, participants could identify three emotions, happy, sad, and mad. And her point in the intro to the book is that being able to identify three emotions is like going to the doctor and having to describe what's wrong with your with tape over your mouth and your hands tied behind your back. If you don't understand the feelings and the emotions that are coursing through your body and are acting as um, that's the information that you're using to make decisions. If you don't understand any of that, if you don't know what's happening, you don't know yourself, you're going to make bad decisions and have a bad time. So the premise of the book is like, hey, here's all these emotions. Here's how, you know, envy and jealousy, for example, two totally different things. Like one is coming from a place of fear. Jealousy is like, I don't want you to have the thing that I want. So like uh, relationships is a good example. Like I am jealous that he is dating her because I want him to date me. Jealousy. I'm jealous that he's spending time with her because it's less time he's spending with me, that kind of thing. Whereas envy is just, I want what you have, but it's not coming from a place of fear. Like you went on an amazing vacation. I'm so envious. And people 
very rarely get the nuances of something like that right. They're like, oh, I'm so jealous. You went on that vacation. You're not jealous. You're envious. And the nuances are incredibly important when it comes to understanding yourself and what drives your decision making and your relationships with other people. To the point where if you don't understand those 70 something emotions, all of those things are hard. It's life on hard mode. So that book, everyone should read, understand those different emotions and what they mean and how like why they trigger you. Life changing. I'm trying to think of other stuff. Those are like, those are the really obstacles. The way by Ryan holiday is, um, very foundational to my own, um, development as a person control what you can control and ignore all of the rest is kind of a big piece of stoicism and something kind of like, like crux of that book. And it's one of those things when you, when you don't understand it and you're introduced to it and you start living by it, life-changing. Brilliant. Yeah. I actually, I wanted to reach to reach out to Ryan holiday. Um, and then I have Brené Brown, but I'm going to circle around again this year. I'm just hoping that, you know, as, as this grows and grows and grows and maybe some more mutual people, you know, come on that I'm able to, to bring her on because I think her work, especially with vulnerability in a profession where up until recently we were taught that we weren't supposed to feel. Show no fear, show yeah. no emotion. I think it would be invaluable. Yeah, like couldn't agree more. She's incredible. She's so engaging and cool too. Yeah. She'd, yeah. she'd be great. You get, you get those guys on, I'll be a, well, already, I'm going to be a lifelong listener. The Like the point of your podcast, they're like, founding principle of it is so awesome is like let's take these life lessons these mindset this mentality and let's give it to the people who we don't even realize are saving our lives every single day they're putting their ass on the line for us let's uh, let's give those guys the best of all of our experiences so awesome absolutely well thank you i mean that's the thing i i adore them and you know when you start having these conversations you realize if you wear uniform yes it's pertinent some of these are more pertinent to you but ultimately we're all human beings so anyone listening can can glean so much thank you so much for having me this has been awesome i feel like i could have gone on for could have had this conversation for a lot longer yeah no i've got a couple more closing questions if you got got just a moment um what about a film and or documentary well what's the what's my give me some parameters just like anything educational entertaining inspiring whatever comes to mind oh man what am i i love jessica chastain and i love every movie she's ever been in so molly's game miss sloan zero dark 30 all amazing movies love anything she's in um there's a part of um miss sloan at the very end or sorry not miss sloan molly's game at the very end that kind of ties into what we've been talking about which is that you know she goes through a, a series of kind of unfortunate events, very unfortunate. And at the very end, she asks, you know, did anything good come from this? Not really. But I did learn something encouraging. I'm very hard to kill. And it's such an awesome mindset where it's like all this shit, all this, life is going to come for you. Like it's coming. And it's all about like how to make yourself so resilient that you are just impossible to kill mentally and physically. And, you know, it's, it's fitness, it's mindset, it's education, it's, you know, your relationships with other people, all of it plays a role in being incredibly unfuckwithable and hard to kill. And if I could do, if I, if I could give anybody a, a gift that wasn't something you could wrap, that would be it. The gift of unfuckwithable, where you just, you know, 
everything brushes off of you like water off a bird or water around a rock. It's awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that actually is a topic that's come up a few times as well. When we talk about fitness, you, you know, it's like, well, we've got X amount of people that are obese or overweight. You know, for me, coming from a kindness and compassion perspective, I've seen what happens. I'm the last person they see before they die a lot of times. Um, and so there's that, but there's also the national security element and people don't think about that. The, the less able we are to protect, the more vulnerable we are. And we look at, you know, certain countries coming into other countries. If you were, let's say China, for example, and you have, they happen to be thinking about this and you looked at, you know, the, the, the state of America at the moment. Yes, we have some incredibly fit, capable warriors in this country, male and female. Yeah. But, you know, again, increasingly, there's a huge gap between those people and the people that they're protecting. Yeah. And then also, that gap is dangerous. Yeah. And the, the, the narrative is becoming, well, you can't tell those people to get in shape or, you know, right. inspire you them because that's you fat might shaming. offend them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's fat shaming. It's offensive. It's like, I will die on this hill. Sometimes like the best medicine is a good slap in the face. Like <laughs> you, you know, doctors that come in to examine a patient and you know, the patient is a hundred pounds overweight and we're, we're spending the all you know eight minutes, which I think is the average amount of time a doctor spends with a patient in America. We're spending in those entire eight minutes talking about symptoms and not the root cause of the fact that you're fat, you're over, you're a hundred pounds overweight. That is the crux of all of your, issues but we doctors feel like they can't say that because it's not politically correct it's uncomfortable we don't want to challenge people like everybody needs to be challenged like it's you don't you can't do anything how could you ever do this if you hadn't already survived that kind of thing and by protecting ourselves insulating ourselves from difficulty and struggle and challenge and any um fact or opinion that isn't perfectly congruent with our own is so dangerous. It makes us weak and vulnerable and ripe for um, attack and manipulation. Yeah. You're just begging for it. Well, I mean, I've pointed to, to COVID. I started a third episode every week when I saw all the misinformation during COVID. I had people talking about vaccines. It was a, a friend of mine who's a ER physician. I had people that were fired because of the vaccine mandates. I mean, you know, both sides of this conversation, but standing firmly in the middle, talking about the importance of underlying health, whether you choose to vaccinate, not sure. vaccinate, yeah, mask, like whatever you want to do. But I'm always very careful when we talk about people's health is the ownership element Absolutely, 100%. Only you can get your ass out of bed, you know, into a gym, whatever it is. But we've also got to look at the environment. And if you look at the message that was given when we had a captive audience that we could have really made huge change on the way we farm, the way we educate our kids on food, the way we feed them in our schools, you know, the, the PE, all that stuff. It was just go to your house, shut the fuck up. All the gyms are closed. The beaches are closed. The parks are closed. But you can get alcohol and fast food delivered to your house. And then we look at the obesity epidemic and like oh, so ownership weird. is part of it, but it's also environment. Yeah. In Iceland, I bet you the environment supports people's decisions to move, to eat well, etc. I would argue that America, you are swimming upstream if you are a healthy human being in this country in most of the urban and suburban areas. Uh, couldn't agree more. Like I forget what it's called, but there is a psychology principle where that essentially asserts that we are 
who we are on a, a sliding scale. And you just think of it vertical, the scale's vertical, and about halfway up the line, there's a horizontal line. And below the line is like the, the worst versions of ourselves. And above the line is who we are when we're the best versions of ourselves. And you can imagine, you know, what those two look like. One's like happy and motivated and has a sense of purpose and good relationships with their friends and family. And then the other one is sullen and detached and angry. And, you know, that manifests itself in a certain way. But the point is, these are the same. This is the same person. And the difference is environment. I've definitely been in a position. I know plenty of um, athletes that can attest to this. Um, they trained, you know, with this coach or with this athlete, with this group of people, and they were this bottom version of themselves and they didn't really know any better. And then they switched coaches for whatever reason, or they moved or they wherever. And almost night and day, like became a different version of themselves, started living above the line. And that's something really important to remember is environment. You can do, be doing quote, everything right and still feel like ass, like still not something's off and the environment influences who we are to it's almost 50 50 like nature versus nurture and so you know anybody's going through a hard time and they're not happy with like how they feel all the time like take a good look at your environment and ask yourself like are the people around me is the culture that i spend my time in helping me or holding me back and if you can have like an honest assessment of that then you know the rest of your life starts (laughs) Absolutely. Well, the next question, is there a person that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Definitely. Um, I would, so many of the athletes that I work with are all, they all have so much to add. Like Annie Thor's daughter is one of the most impressive people that I've ever gotten to work with, as is Brooke Wells and Katrin Davis' daughter. If you can, they have so much mindset Um, so many mindset principles and just hard lessons that they've learned that would be really valuable to, you know, a, um, service member demographic. Um, I personally have been profoundly influenced by Ben Bergeron. Like I know a lot of people listen to his podcast and have been influenced probably in similar ways that I have, but I've had the great fortune of kind of being mentored by Ben for the last seven years. And he's not as popular, um, every all leaders go through stages where they're you know in or out or whatever and um, ben is for whatever reason not as popular right now as he was when both of his athletes won the games but it doesn't change who he is he's an incredibly smart incredibly capable um leader friend um thinker awesome guy to have on the podcast if you can and I mean, you mentioned Ryan Holiday and Brene Brown doesn't get much better than those guys. So I would say get Ben, get some CrossFit Games athletes. They have so like they've learned so much by challenging themselves and they have so many lessons to share. I would love to listen to those episodes. Brilliant. Well, thank you. I've got um, and I got to fire up for 2023 and get some, you know, some different 
types of guests on. Um, I'm trying to write my second book, so it's like juggling all these things. Oh, but uh, yeah. I'm going to spend the next couple of weeks writing emails and trying to reach out to some of these people. Awesome. Well, thank you again for having me. This is awesome. This is amazing. Thank you. So I want to make sure people listening, if they do want to find you online, I mean, I'm assuming the books are on Amazon. Yes. Um, where are the best places, websites, or social media for you? Um, I'm mostly just on Instagram. My username is Christine DCA. Don't ask what the DCA stands for. I don't know. It was just available. <laughs> <laughs> you got to come up with something. Yeah, uh, we'll go with the DC airport code, I think is DCA. So that's weird, but we'll go with that. There we go. Um, yeah, that's pretty much it. I'm on Instagram. Uh, come to CFNE and take the 430 class. I'll be there too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say thank you so much. I mean, this was obviously made possible by um, Dr. Rocket. So I want to say thank oh, you to him as Dr. well. Dr. Rocket is the man. But to, for us to have this conversation and discover that we actually live in the same town or you grew up in the same town where I so, live now. So random, so weird, so. but also just kind of gives you encouragement. Like the world is smaller than we think it is. It's Absolutely. a big world out there, but we're all more connected than we think we are. 100%. So I just want to say thank you. I mean, we've been all over the place from, you know, CrossFit world to Middle Eastern politics and everything in between. So thank you so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome.